Welcome to episode 166 of A Pint with Shawnee B as we trundle headlong into the final month of 2020. And things are slightly better, primarily because it looks like, despite his bunkered tantrum throwing, that Donald Trump is no longer going to be the President of the United States, a man who is a danger, in my view, to the world and the planet and our very existence has been ousted. Um, I'm with the Don. Hi. Would you say you're happy that he's been cancelled? So we're going to have a discussion today about cancel culture. And we were, before we pressed play on this, we were sort of just commenting about how nervous we would be if this was all going out live, because we're going to touch on some observations, personal observations, but hopefully observations that are coming from study and a slightly informed view. We're not going to say we know all the answers. We're not going to say we're fully informed about things. But just this certain direction the world is taking that is starting to become slightly worrying. We talked about it in the last podcast. Uh, We played a little clip from uh, Sam Harris um, and we talked about the idea that intellectuals are now in the firing line and science is in the firing line and people are galvanizing and forming groups that are bizarre and unsubstantiated and driven by conspiracy and not least uh, Donald Trump himself. Donald Trump, even to this day, I think a month later, consistently said the election has been rigged, the election has been stolen, he should have won. And research out recently shows that 68% of Republican Party members in America believe him with no evidence whatsoever, as in 30 or 40 court cases have been initiated by his leaking windman, let's call him, Rudy Giuliani, And they've all been thrown out. So it is critical that America's democratic process is not rigged. It is critical that all legal votes are counted because that's what democracy is. But Donald Trump continues to behave like a tin pot dictator from Uganda, with all due respect to Uganda. And it's scary. Yeah. I mean, we've we've touched on it quite a bit. I think we need to protect discourse, me to encourage it. And I don't want to sit here and be like two albums ringing a radio show like Joe Duffy going, it's terrible, you can say nothing these days, you can't say anything. And like, I don't think that's useful. If our point is that we have to encourage discourse and not just cancel everything that offends us, I think within that we have to actually look at, let's take it apart because the world has changed. Like the internet is a massive thing that has changed what the town square is like. And as a society, we have to figure out how are we going to navigate this? Those of us who aren't big on cancel culture are, in a sense, canceling anybody else who (laughs) believes in cancel culture. But the bottom line is we actually have to have discourse and we have to be generous to people who hold other opinions to us to try and not necessarily agree with them, but try and understand what's driving them. Can you maybe to start the podcast, give your interpretation or a view on what we mean by cancel culture? Yeah, so 
we throw a lot around a lot of terms like cancel culture and everybody has some understanding of what that means but I don't believe that everybody's understanding is necessarily the same and I think it's actually really important to look at what we mean and define what we mean in order to move forward. I mean I, I looked it up and you're going to get lots of different definitions but what I kind of landed on that cancel culture is the mass withdrawal of any support of a public figure because of transgressions ranging from serious crimes like sexual assault to making offensive comments online to espousing ideologies deemed problematic or unwoke. And that basically it's a cultural boycott and a public shunning. And that sounds, as a lot of dictionary terms, that sounds accurate to me. Yeah. I mean, usually when you hear cancel culture, it's from somebody who is criticising cancel culture, which is fine. Cancel culture is not really an old term. Basically, 10 years ago, the term cancelled became popular on Black Twitter, and it was just a colloquialism. It was meant in kind of a hyperbolic way. It wasn't meant as an action. It was just, uh, I don't like them, they're cancelled. It was, it was just said casually. And it's only in the past maybe two years that cancel culture has really become an identity politics thing and it's it's been morphed into an actual boycott. Like before 2018, there were fewer than 100 tweets with the phrase cancelled or cancel culture in it. Where did and we get there? Thousands. Yeah, yeah, now it's huge. So within cancelling, right? So I would say that there are variables. If there's, let's say there's a particular artist, maybe a big singer. Within cancel culture, some variables, maybe I will consume their art, but won't support them by paying for it. Maybe I'll ostracise or cancel any person or organisation that continues to support them. Mm. For instance, Stephen Fry got a lot of criticism for continuing to be involved with J.K. Rowling and bringing her up on a programme and celebrating some of her work. So that level of cancel culture is he's getting dirt thrown at him for not cancelling her. Another one is you might demand that somebody is entirely deplatformed, so uninvited to speak at a university or whatever. I mean, to say that you're cancelling somebody can mean different things to different people and there are different levels of it. You know, what's the difference between taking a dislike to somebody after? Like, I, I might decide that Michael Jackson, for example, I would have decided early on, I'm, I can listen to his music if I want to. But if he were alive and if if supporting him financially is contributing to power that he has to abuse people or is contributing to power that he has within the courts, then I'd kind of go, mm, not comfortable with that. So I would financially boycott somebody like Michael Jackson. But if he's dead, I can still listen to his music. It's just music. However, I have noticed that sometimes I might like a song of his and I kind of go, it's a bit tainted for me because it's just icky when he's like, he's lovely songs and I'm going, ooh. Mm. So that's a personal thing. I also won't give money to religious organisations. Mm. So that's for me. But for other people, it's a case of they so should the, be cancelled altogether. So just on that topic, what if Michael Jackson was used in an advertisement, his music, for a product that you really enjoyed buying or purchasing, such as maybe cigarettes. And does that mean you stop smoking? No, it wouldn't bother me at all. But right. I mean, aside from that, that's not even... Do you see a, what I mean there? Right? Yeah, so what I'm saying for me is I have no issue with Michael Jackson's music. I, If he were alive, I wouldn't want to contribute to his money. Right. So I'd steal it off the internet if I want to listen to it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Do that I do that anyway. But no. you see my point. Like yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay to go and see someone if it's if that if they're making their money off it. I'd stream stuff, but I wouldn't financially support somebody. But I'll still enjoy their art if I wish to, because so, I'm I'm not helping. I'm not empowering somebody. You know. So when I was growing up, one of the big influences on my comedy was um, comedy appreciation, comedy learning was Woody Allen and Woody Allen's early movies, Sleeper, Bananas and Love and Death I thought were fantastic. Woody Allen ends up 
clearly, as you would say, problematic. I'll come back to that term. He, he was married as stepdaughter and all that kind of stuff and clearly you know he's gone through a huge pitch battle with Mia Farrow over lots of things and his son her son and I mean so Woody Allen is in a cancelled slightly cancelled area Uh, does that mean that his movies are shit and shouldn't be watched no I don't think so Mm. Um, a lot of people do I don't think somebody's art is is, is suddenly shit just because I don't support them as a person however I am human, and sometimes it spoils it for me. So in many cases in this cancelled situation, an artist, in their past, something has been uncovered that has now called into question their entire oeuvre, right? I mean, there was an interesting case this month uh, where the famous ex-Man United footballer Ryan Giggs has been suspended as Wales manager because he was uh, arrested um, for a domestic violence with his partner situation. Ryan Giggs also has previous, he did the dirty on his brother by shagging his brother's wife. But now Ryan Giggs is caught in this thing after his career. Does that mean his career is null and void? Was he always like that? Was he always beating up women? Was he always hitting them? Something in the present is affecting his stature in, in, in life. Does that mean that his record as one of the most decorated footballers has to be called into question or his because I guess where I'm coming from on this is we're all human beings and mm. we're all flawed in yeah. whatever ways well put or, it this you know, way so like I, I don't give a shit about football but let's mm. say I did and you know when people kind of go you, you could have five dinner guests your fantasy yeah. dinner guests who would you like to have and somebody who's a big football fan might say oh I'd love to have him yeah now does it mean his football career is not fantastic and impressive? No, of course not. But somebody might go, oh, I wouldn't want to have him now. After what I've learned about him, I wouldn't particularly want to have him as my, my fantasy dinner party guest. Yeah, I get that. And and yet, you know, we just, we're, we're recording this three days after Diego Maradona just passed away to huge turmoil, particularly in Argentina. And Diego Maradona was an extraordinarily flawed character you know wore his heart in his sleeve but was just you know coked up half the time i mean i'm surprised he lasted to to 60 but again this genius this flawed the the concept of the flawed genius going all the way back to oscar wilde and him getting locked up for homosexuality all this kind of stuff society is making a call on people Mm. now you know think about harvey weinstein there we're starting to get into, okay, this guy is clearly a slug who's abusing his power. And, you know, and yet there's a, there's not a huge Venn diagram difference between Harvey Weinstein and some of the tales coming out about Donald Trump and his yeah. abuse of women. Right. So Donald Trump, not only is he not cancelled, his presidency lasts and he's still adored by half the American population. Yeah, but I think there are more people in the world who have a horrendous opinion of Donald Trump than there are people who are fans. That like that's Same the thing. With Harvey Weinstein. Well, yeah, but that's that's the the point I'm getting at is that Donald Trump is just as cancelled as Harvey Weinstein. It's just that he's also got all these people fighting for him. Yeah, but and but, that's but, the way but, the way but, politics works is that you don't have to be. That's the thing. You don't have but to. But Woody be Allen honest. has quite a lot of people fighting for him, right? Harvey Weinstein has nobody fighting really for him at all, and in my view, rightly so. But again, it comes back to conversations we've had before. I don't believe people should be fighting for Donald Trump given, mm. grab them by the pussy, give yeah. them his, you know, Stormy Daniels, given all this sort of stuff. Now, we're making a judgment call 
on morality of yeah. a human being. There are plenty of men I know who are grabbed them by the pussy men, one in particular. And, you know, I have cancelled them out of my life. Okay, mm. But other friends think they're great. Ah, he just does that, right? Kind of, It's like people who are in the public sphere, I, I'm confused about why they're on such a pedestal. It's like it's almost like we make heroes out of artists or public intellectuals to the point where we don't allow them humanity and we don't allow them to be flawed. And as soon as there's something we don't like about them or a mistake they've made or something they've said, something that leaves a sour taste in our mouth, they're completely cancelled. Fuck them. Like, they let them not have any money. Let them not have any future. And yet, in my experience, I don't find that people cancel people within their personal life near as quickly. However, mm, yeah. I, I know this about myself. I am a serial canceller of people. I don't tend to cancel people. Don't cancel me. Yeah, I don't <laughs> tend to cancel people in the public sphere. Like there would be some notable exceptions that I wouldn't support, but I, in my own personal life, and, and it might be, I, it might be an aspect of my autism or whatever. But I, I kind of think if I invite people into my private sphere, it's kind of a big thing. I don't, I care about everybody, but I don't trust everybody. If I don't trust them, or if it's something they've done. I tend to think that I'm too, I'm too particular. And so I'm always kind of telling myself, give over, turn, give over, just uh, uh, don't be so, don't be so fussy. And then a point comes where I go, actually, this person's not good for me. I don't trust that you have good intentions for me. And they're just cancelled. And that's the end of it. And people seem surprised about that. And I know that I do that too much. So I'm also conscious of if you cancel people easily before you know what everyone's cancelled. So it confuses me that people don't seem to have such high standards for the people who actually can affect your life. People who you have a relationship with, we don't cancel near as quickly. And yet people that owe us nothing and we don't know that are just public figures are cancelled well, with the drop of a hat. Well, I find a, it confusing. Well, there, I mean, one, one of the ways out of that might be the idea that historically, certainly, and Donald Trump may have been the one who took a sledgehammer to this. Historically, if you are famous or in the public eye, whether you're a television news reader or whether you're a talk show host or a footballer or an actor or a comedian, you are a, a sort of role model to particularly young people and have to behave as a kind of standard bearer of the norms of the society in which you live. And when you break that, everything comes crumbling down. Now, Donald Trump is coming at it from another angle. He's kind of going, fuck all that. Here's who I am. Flaws, warts, boils mm. and all. Yeah, but I, that, that's my whole point. The idea of the, of public figures being a role model and therefore, and I think there's a big, there's a huge difference. I mean, there are manufactured pop stars who they, they've known from the word go. Their money is made from preteens and, you know, so they kind of know you, no, you are actually putting yourself out there as a role model. I think that's slightly different to somebody who's an author or a comedian and their ideas gain traction and people like to hear them speak. Why are we making gods of people that are in the public sphere and then being disappointed when they're not suitable role models yeah. or when something they do is wrong and then deciding to cancel them entirely that we can't enjoy their art? Like it's such a line in the sand, black and white issue. And I don't see the same level of integrity of cancelling people who actually have let you down or you might decide are not people who are good for you or have your best interest at heart like there's not the same level of integrity when it comes to day to day and I wonder if that's because it's inconvenient and people don't want to cancel people out of their lives it's awkward it's generally speaking I don't see a huge amount of of boundaries being enforced and of saying this is not good enough I'm not going to be around this person I'm not going to invite them into my life anymore but yet 
we get to be sanctimonious cancelling people we don't know because we've decided to make them role models. It, it strikes me a little bit that, you know, when it's related to their job, a banker who's got his finger in the till, you know, someone who's espousing, a priest, you know, diddling boys, yeah. where the fall is directly related to your job. Um, Maradona is a great example. Sorry, I know you don't like football, but there will be people listening to this who will and know this. You know, in the, oh, the one, hand of God thing. Yeah, in the one match, he not only scored the greatest goal considered to be the greatest goal of the 20th century, but he also cheated by mm. handballing, knowing well that he did, to score the first goal against England. So there is the flawed genius, right? And, 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 you know, there's evil genius. You know, evil genius is a thing. Evil genius is... I know what I'm doing here and I'm cheating and I'm going to get on. Then there's his private life and his drug taking and his peccadillos and different affairs with all these people. And yet the, the whole melange is this kind of fucking God, as you say, but a flawed God. And we like our gods a bit flawed. We like Donald Trump to be flawed, you know? Yeah, because obviously there's a difference between if the flaw that has been found is directly related to your work, as in you cheated and the thing yeah. that you're you're so famous for you cheated on that's a different thing if the flaw is something within your private life or something that you've said that's entirely unrelated but you're famous and you've but you've shown your arse as being not a very nice person mm. then i think your work still stands although as i've said when we put cancel culture up next to boycott boycott seems like yeah boycott's an honorable thing to do <laughs> but cancel culture is like a whingy 21st century millennial thing to do and like the boycott was actually invented in ireland it has power i mean when we think about boycotts we think about apartheid all of these things that we're quite proud of. Having integrity is sometimes saying, I wish to boycott that. I want no part in that. Like, I don't want to contribute to charities that are run by church organizations. I don't want to contribute to celebrities who, who are going through court cases and my money is giving them more power. There are things that I boycott and I realize that boycotts tend to work on a group basis. That's uh, particularly when it's economic. It, it works when it's everybody. However, then you start straying into cancel, cancel culture. Yeah, and I think an interesting point you made there is, and I think we need, to, we need to stray into this area, which is who then decides. So your decision that I'll never, and it's a personal decision mm. for you, contribute to a Christian charity, I would probably be similar to you, although I do believe there are a lot of Christian charities. Yeah, well, I like that. I wouldn't, it's not an absolute never, but yeah. I'm, I'm very kind of, I, I look into charities and I go, oh, hang on, is that a Christian organization yeah. that sends cards? To the, no, fuck that, no. But certainly any Christian charity that part of the quid pro quo of getting yeah. a bowl of maize is that you, ch- you believe in God and start chanting prayers yeah. I have no interest in. Now, there are thousands of people, especially in our country and especially in America, who would totally disagree with you on that in society mm. and say, we are a religious country, we are a Catholic country, we should support our missions. Our view, which would be probably in the minority um, in Ireland, would be the missions are doing more damage than good and have been I don't, proved I don't know if that view would be that much in the... In the in well, I'd, I'd say, you know, yeah, maybe But not, the but bottom line being, that, well, it's, not it's kind of a side issue, yeah. but we're not a Catholic country. As my, Lots of people can continue to say that all you like, yeah. but that is a personal issue. No, we're not. No, and that's at what least a third of people believe that we are and they prefer to be going yeah. back to that and they prefer to be reinforcing Catholic values. They'd be against taking religion out of schools. They'd be against all the communions and all that stuff. So... Then we end up with cancel culture on, and we, we, we need to stray now into, into things like Black Lives Matter and uh, Islam and things like that. Who then decides in the culture when and how the mark is being overstepped to the point of cancellation? Yeah, 
I have my own personal boycotts, which is fine. Everybody has them. But then we don't like the idea of people being cancelled and there has to be freedom of thought. And so I, I don't love the idea of cancel culture, although I reserve the right to have my own personal boycotts, grand. But then you look at censorship. I was looking at censorship and I found a TED Talk by David Shanks, who's the censor for New Zealand. And he's got this whole team and sometimes it's really fun. He gets to watch movies all the time and go, this is great. And sometimes it's not so nice what he has to do. They're always trying to avoid censoring where possible and censorship for censorship's sake. But then when the Christchurch mosque attack happened, the that, that was live streamed. And a lot of people had seen it already, but he was sent that and he had to watch that. And so himself and his team had to decide what was being censored. And there was also a document put out with that video. So, so it was a really interesting conversation and if, if anybody wants to look it up it's, There'll be a link on the it, yeah, it's w- well worth it because it brings into it that point that we can't just sit here and say oh we don't believe in censorship well actually we have to have censorship for some things it is difficult to work out when the harm is going to be too much but the harm is not about offence like in this case it was pretty much a call to arms uh, and it was a how to kind of guide so I mean let's stick with that for a second because um, we've also had problems in Paris on the anniversary of Charlie Hebdo and a uh, number of killings, beheadings on the part of radical Islam, Islamists. And France is a country that struggles with its burqa wearing and it's, you know, it is a huge, huge population of uh, Muslims, all of whom are law-abiding French people who are not trying to fucking break things, but some of them are. And yet there is a viewpoint within Islam, and I'm pretty sure within secular Islam, that it is absolutely punishable by death, or at least by cancel culture, I mean, the ultimate cancel is death, to draw cartoons of the Prophet. Yeah. And there's a, there's a um, previous podcast with, cartoonist um, Liza Donnelly from The New Yorker, where we discuss this in depth. And, you know, she tends to come down on the side of, you know, we shouldn't be, as cartoonists, drawing pictures of Muhammad because it will upset Muslims. Now, we live in a society where, you know, there's artists who can do piss Christ and have the crucifix in a bowl of urine, which is probably the most degrading thing you could do for the for a Christian mm. icon such as the crucifix and that's freedom of expression freedom you don't have to buy the fucking thing mm. I, don't, I wouldn't like a guy's piss in a bottle with crucifix in it anyway but we live in a society where humour cartooning you know the cartoonists are the court jesters mm. so then you get into the thing of offence in general, I don't think it's nice to go around offending people. Offence is not a nice thing to cause. Mm. I'm sure it causes offence quite a lot. However, the idea that you're entitled not to be offended is preposterous. Yeah. So I'm not saying that it's nice to go around deliberately upsetting people. I think there are times when you choose to offend someone and it's the right thing to do because they need to be offended because you're standing up for what you believe in and they may be completely in the wrong. So I don't think it's always wrong to offend, but I get that it's not nice. It's I don't, wouldn't set out to go, go around hurting people and causing people offence. I think it's unpleasant to deliberately draw a cartoon that you know is there just to upset people. However, I don't think people are entitled not to see something that causes them offence. And th- like that, you're also entitled to criticise somebody who offends you. Sure. I mean, 
just stick on this thing. So one of the things that never really was discussed about the Charlie Hebdo thing was move from cartoon to cartoon. Are some of the cartoons funny? Are some of the cartoons fair game? Are some of the cartoons... Like, it's a bit like a comedian who goes up and tell, tells highly racist, you know, north of England circa 1970 using the N-word liberally. Clearly, we've moved on as a society from that because mm. that word is so charged. Now, have we moved on from a society where, first of all, I would say that if the Prophet and Allah are so powerful... Uh, as Islam's claims they are, then they will be smoked, these cartoonists, by Allah or, or a combination of the angels or whatever Valkyrie he can, he, he or she, I'm mean, pronouncing he, sorry, can send, right? And yet people are going, no, I'm going to take this into my own hands because this is so insulting that we're drawing cartoons of, and you know, to be fair to Islam, we walk around in bikinis on beaches, we serve porn, we drink as a society, we do a huge number of things that are highly offensive to Islam. So in many cases, it's not surprising that there's a huge number of people within Islam that kind of want to whip us into shape, which is what they're trying to do and what quite a lot of religions do. But I'm going, actually, you know what? The main thing here is that it's highly likely in this scientific age that your religion is a load of nonsense. Hmm. And yet you're having this sway over a culture, over a society. Yeah. And actually, clearly, I mean, if you... if God was appearing in the sky every Tuesday or rocking up to CNN to, for a chat. We go, oh, yeah, but I'm not a fan God. He doesn't like that. And he'd probably say he doesn't like it. No cartoons. Mm. You know, and we can start going deeper into female genital mutilation. We can start going into eye for an eye. We can start going into not letting women drive. Covering women. Yeah. We're, we're, we're happy enough letting that all go. See, so, but like I find it, uh, like it's, it's, there's a huge thing about criticizing Islam and I don't want to go way into religion because I know we've done yeah. a lot, but it, for, it, for the purposes of cancel culture and censorship, there's a sanctimony that we're allowed to criticize, uh, Western religion and Christianity and I do quite frequently. We're allowed to do all of that, but if you start picking on Islam and you're a Western white person, that's not on. That's not on at all. Because that's causing offence. That is offensive. It is offensive to start criticising and picking apart another person's religion. It's offensive to start suggesting that women in Saudi Arabia need Western feminism. That is offensive. So instead of offending or stepping on anyone's toes, what we do in all of our glory to, to be wonderful, kind citizens, we don't want to offend. What we'll do is we'll sit back and let little brown girls have genital mutilation because we don't want to offend anyone. So I'll put it this way. I have two kids. I have 10 and 7. If I'm in the supermarket and one of the kids annoys me and I start not just smacking them but boxing the fucking head off the back of my kid and someone goes, now if I go up to her and say, you're a terrible mother, how dare you, you're abusing those kids, I'm going to call the guards, they're going to call Tusa, you need those kids taken off you and say to my kid, she shouldn't be doing that to you. I can't tell you anything more offensive to be told as a mother than you're a disgrace, your kid should be taken off you, she shouldn't be doing that to you. So should the person stand back not to offend me or should they step in and say, get your fucking hands off that kid? Yeah, that's a very good analogy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And also we have to remember that... It's not are, nice to offend me. millions of Muslim mothers and fathers who believe in snipping the clit off their daughter. Excuse the technical term. But they believe in this. Yeah. And they believe in the right to do it. But and they had it done to them. There are things that we know and we know that not everybody agrees, but we most of the world there are things that we know are just not right it's not okay to punch the fucking head off a kid yeah. it's not okay 
to mutilate a little girl for yeah. cultural reasons. Those things are awful. They are terrible. Like the, it comes back to the sanctimony thing. There are so many people congratulating themselves and patting themselves on the back. So sanctimonious because they're good people that don't go offending people. And you go, well, congratulations. Yeah. That was very fucking brave. Well, uh, you know, send your daughter into a, yeah. uh, a, an exchange program from Ireland. Yeah. To very Arabia brave of you because you're better than the rest them, of us. Let them learn the culture of radical Islam. I mean, but the, the, going back to the Charlie Hebdo thing, the cartoons have had an absolute field day on the orange bloated buffoonery of Donald Trump, who is a cartoonist mm. delight. Yeah. And insulting, rude, offensive cartoons about Donald Trump, who has an 80, or so close to a 75 million strong cult supporting him, mm. many of whom are armed. Now, what happens if these guys go, you know what, we're sick of you guys doing fucking cartoons on our leader, because he is almost like a cult leader, yeah. and we're going to start shooting up the cartoonists in the New York Times or in the, yeah, in the and Chicago you can say, Tribune. You can say, okay, well, it's not, it's, not, it's, not religious, it's not a religious thing that you're not supposed to represent them. You know, he is the president of the free world. Yeah. He is the president of their country, and for many people, that is sacred. He's their and leader. And yeah. they, they, people love him, think, feel very strongly about him, but that's different. No, it's not different. He was the president of their country. So they have every right to be deeply offended. Mm. And I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure very, very many Trump supporters are disgusted with the, with the cartoons they see. They don't like them. Mm. I can't honestly say I've ever heard any drive to stop that happening. No. So as such, Muslims can go, I don't like those cartoons. They're not nice. I don't like the people who do them. But... I would say that within the cartooning industry you can make a cartoon that should be cancelled you can make a cartoon that maybe has trump in it or maybe that mm-hmm. should not be allowed because it's too whatever you know it's too it, it's wrong okay now who, yeah. again who decides whether it's wrong i yeah. don't know but i but think i think that that, i think that's true i think that's there. really important because it, it, it should be hard i'd be hard pushed to find one that i think should be cancelled i'd say it'd be very easy for me to find ones that i don't like mm. but i think it's really important what you've just said which is rather than the all or nothing that let's look for the tiny kernel of what might be so if a cartoon was inciting violence if it was a call to arms it should be cancelled now the fact that it might offend people who are armed is a separate issue what if it featured a child in it and I don't think children are fair game. Mm. I think maybe it's a famous child. Maybe it's fe- it's a cartoon and it's featuring the child in a sexual way or undressed. I don't care if it's only a cartoon. That is a child. You don't do that. So I think there are and things like that. Fo- we have examples of photographic art uh, where photographers photograph naked children or whatever. And that's all problematic. And, mm. you know, go come back to this problematic word. For me, problematic means, first of all, controversial that they have done or said something that is not just that many people would disagree with, but that a fair proportion of people will be incensed by, will be horrified by, that will, will find it absolutely egregious. So this person is quite a controversial figure. That would be problematic. If the word is thrown around too easily. Yeah. Here's where I want to go with it. Where, where do we want to end up with this? There was an incident earlier in the summer where, you know, a guy who's been on this podcast, a black friend of mine in America, I had this, it was probably a stupid idea, but I thought it would be really cool if for a week everyone in support and solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement put a black spot on their Facebook 
page so that the whole of Facebook turned black. And he got back on to me going, oh, what, why would I do that? I'm already black. Completely missing the point, but giving me this kind of condescending lecture to someone who's on his side, yeah. totally on his side, by the way, totally on his side, and yet just bend the fucking knee. You're wrong here because yeah. I'm black and I'm right. I can't play with see, that. I, I can't play with that when I talk to poor people who go, fuck yeah. your privilege. If I want to try and help, I'm going to step on a landmine or two. So here's the thing. Like, now, if somebody had said, look, I appreciate what you're trying to do. It's a nice idea, but it's not, it's actually not good because here's, because here's why it wouldn't work out. But I do appreciate your, the sentiment behind it. Mm-hmm. You'd have been like, grand, fair enough. And you're, like, you wouldn't be too proud to go, okay, well, you know, I'll, 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 t- I'll take a step back and let them lead. Yeah, but, but that's exactly it, what but, I've done. But now when I say that, do you know what the answer to that online would be? Your tone policing. Yeah, but that, that's exactly. But I think but there needs to be a bit more fucking tone policing. As in, when someone's trying to help, I'm not saying that we have to bow and scrape and go, oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Like if a man wants to help with a feminist issue, I don't have to go, oh, thanks very much, you're dead right. I can say no, but this idea that we have to be so careful with everybody else's feelings and ideologies that we don't offend, and yet there's this entitlement to be horribly rude to people who aren't helping in the right way, yeah. you can say no. Yeah. You can say no, but there is a real condescending nastiness. So I think that there's an element of this within the whole Black Lives Matter movement. I think there's an element of this in the trans movement. Mm-hmm. I think this is regressive leftism, yeah. as it's called, where it's actually running around. And this podcast may become a victim of this. It's running around, as you say, tone policing. What did that person say? At the it's end vicious, of the day, though. I have a brain that's reasonably educated, I have points of view, I think about bigger things, I try and contribute, I'm going to walk on a landmine Mm. here too. I'm not going to please all of the people all the time, neither are you. Mm. So where do we end up? Is the goal that we end up in some kind of Stepford planet where everybody is watching their P's and Q's, smiling all the time, there's no tension. There's no comedy because you can't do comedy if you might. You might offend a lot of comedy is laughing at people's. See, I don't think that's the goal. See, that, that, no, I'm jo- that's, I think no, but no, but there. no, but I don't think the goal is. I don't think there's this utopian goal. I think there's a dishonesty and a disingenuity from the regressive left. You know, somebody can say something and maybe they mean well, and maybe it was silly, or maybe somebody had. You know, I've often talked about. I remember somebody had used the word hermaphrodite in a feminist circle and this person was older and they were absolutely lit into it. But the context of their comment was clearly trying to be helpful and trying to learn and understand. Instead of people quietly going, thank you for your comment. I know it's, it's, I, I get saying, just so you know, though, we don't actually say hermaphrodite anymore. It's kind of a hurtful word. It's, we, we'd say intersex now, which would have been, oh God, I'm very sorry about that. No, no problem at all. I get what you mean. I just said I'd say it to you would be the normal course of events. But instead, people took the opportunity to lambaste this yeah. person. And that is about call-out culture. Call-out culture is, I even find the word horrendous, call-out Like, what do you think of with call-out? Yeah. You think of the kid in school who's been told to go stand in the corner with the dunce hat and face the corner. It's shaming. There, There is an entitlement to not being offended and entitlement to bend the knee. Like the people who are getting roared at the most and being uh, getting the real bend the knee attitude and getting condescending, nasty sort of tone are not the people who are coming out with hateful stuff. They're the people who are, you know, putting on the t-shirt. Yeah, Yeah. but the people putting on the t-shirt to come and help are the ones who are getting the worst abuse. Like, am I allowed to bend the knee? If I'm playing football, I mean, of course I can't because they're all allowed to do it. But if I was an American footballer who was white when Colin Kaepernick started bending and I bended the knee on the sideline, 
Mm. I go, am I allowed to Shit, this is good or bad? Or am I, am I take the, so, and, yeah. and so what we're ending up with is a situation where people, and this is the worrying thing, we have people who are stupid policing and jumping on and cancelling yeah. to the point where, I mean, look at Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci, isn't it amazing that that guy's kept with, with the program? He's an old guy. He could just go, you know what, Donald Trump? Fuck you. Yeah. I'm out of here. I've done 30 years of this. If you think you know better, I'm out. The guy's still fighting the fight. But I mean, if you look at the people who actually survive cancel culture, right? They're the people who say, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Okay? Which is, you know, sometimes that's useful, but often they're the assholes. So if you look, if, if it's an internet thing and the people who get the vitriol spat at them, the worst kind that really upsets them, the people who end up crying their eyes out for hours are the people who put on the t-shirt and said, I want to help. Black Lives Matter, that, it's really shitty what's happening. I want to help. And then everyone went, you said that wrong. Stay in your own lane. And they're so hateful towards them. And I'm going, okay, I'm not saying that you have to bow and scrape because someone was willing to help. You can tell someone no. You can tell someone this is a mistake and here's why. But if you're going to be horrible to the people who are trying to help, yeah. The people who don't want to help and the people who don't give a shit won't bother get involved. And the people who are actively working against you are laughing in your face. And you're, use, you're using all your energy to attack the people who are actually trying to get on board to help. Correct. That's you're, interesting. You're, you're friendly for If you submit. But here's our, here's our favorite comedian. I came out of the closet on my last special, if you saw it. And uh, you know what? I was not embraced by the gay community. <laughs> It's almost like they thought I was lying. Like they thought I was making it up. But that's passe anyway, so now I'm going to tell you the real truth, all right? You're in my hometown. This is what a lot of people don't know. I'm transgendered. Not just because it's the hip thing to be now. It's really what I am. And I've been hiding this from you for so long. And I feel so free now. I'm transgendered, which if you don't know, that means I, I identify as a woman. I was born into a man's body, but I, I was born a woman as far as I'm concerned. I just happened to be a slovenly pig skank woman that doesn't take care of herself. I'm a woman that let myself go, but I'm okay with that. I'm not some goddamn beauty queen. I don't shave body parts. I don't wear makeup. I couldn't. I, I, I laugh so hard, crying laughing at a loud, ripping fart that it would make my mascara run all the way down my face, because that's the kind of girl I am. I'm a, a, a daddy's girl. We're not all Caitlyn Jenner, an individual. Caitlyn is, she's a, in a ball gown on the cover of Vanity Fair. Go, girl, I'm just not that same. The only modeling I ever did is I did model my teeth for uh, warning labels on packages of Canadian cigarettes. I did that, and that was enough of the spotlight for me. I didn't need anything more. I'm the kind of girl that watches beheading videos and reviews them on Yelp. If I destroy a bathroom, I'll try to trick you into it by saying there's a spider in the tub, and then I'll jam the door shut. That's just a rustic, tomboy kind of gal. And if you cannot accept me for the woman that I am, then you can suck my dick and juggle my balls 
because you're intolerant. <laughs> oh, what is it in you that makes you so uncomfortable around a strong woman like me? <laughs> All right, that's Doug's time. Oh, now, he's a fucker. <laughs> that, well, part, part of this thing is bullying, and one of the ways you combat bullying is you bully a bully. And there is no part of Doug Stanhope that is... Now, I, I bet you that that would cause... That would be mm. considered problematic oh, yeah, yeah. amongst oh, yeah. a certain cohort. But we come back to the court jester. We come back to Charlie Hebba. We come back to the fact that one of the greatest tonics we have to get through issues in society is to laugh at things, Okay. Clearly, Doug Stanhope is not a trans person. Clearly, Doug Stanhope mm. is taking the piss out of how far things are going a little bit. Well, but you see, what's interesting here is I think an, op- an awful lot of people listen to that and go, he's making fun of trans people and it's just not cool. He was punching down. However, because we're big fans of Doug Stanhope, we know a lot of his work. That's not what he's doing. He, he has a huge level of satire. He's not actually making fun of trans people in this. He's making fun of the ideological thought policing. Doug Stanhope is deeply subversive. I don't think you'd necessarily have to be a stupid person to listen to that and assume that he's taking the piss out of trans people. I know Doug Stanhope well enough to know the butt of the joke is not the trans person. Mm. It's the ideology of everybody has to believe what I believe. He's asking questions. The, another brave question coming from that would be, transgender, we must respect, and you're an asshole if you don't. And I personally think you're an asshole if you're not going to respect someone. Like, you know, I, I, I genuinely, like, I've, I've no skin in this game. But... There, there are very tight rules around your transphobe, not only if you don't respect someone's gender, if you don't respect their pronouns, but also the line is trans women are women, trans men are men. And I go, that's interesting because you're now trying to police what people in, internally think. But yet if somebody says, I identify as a person of colour, I identify as black, yeah. that does not go down so well. And I'd like to know what the difference is. Now, if you uh, there's a debate over whether race exists, but if you go with the idea that race is your colour, it's it's certain physical traits from where your people originate in the world. Whereas ethnicity is a little bit different. Ethnicity might involve race, but it's also cultures, traditions, all that kind of thing. Race is to sex as ethnicity is to gender. Mm. So if we're all supposed to accept that somebody who was born male and has decided that they're a woman and they identify as a woman and we should call them by their female name and by female pronouns, which I absolutely would. I'd be horrified to think that I ever wouldn't do that. But why is that different to somebody who is born white and is saying, yeah, I was born white, but I identify as a different ethnicity and I would like to be treated as that and I would like to be welcomed into groups that are particular for people of colour and I would like to be treated with the same... Yeah, and I, I think Charlie Hebbo cartoons or any cartoon that is 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 uh, taking the piss out of uh, Muhammad or, or whatever they're not taking the piss out of Muhammad they're taking the piss out of the fact that people don't want us to take the piss out of yeah, Muhammad right that's so, the point and people miss that so people listening to that clip these hard regressive left policers tone policers cancel culture I mean Doug Stanhope goes on all the time about how he's never been cancelled and how he wants to be cancelled or at least be dragged over the coast because it's great publicity and he makes great jokes about that too in his in his in his work, but he's actually speaking truth to power mm. as all great comedians should, and walking a line. Now he talks about Louis C.K., who was another guy who was famously cancelled for I think taking his lad out and masturbating in front of people. Clearly, something that's is frowned upon at the very least by society, but. You know, the guy did it. He apologized for it. He's gone. He's gone. He's, I don't know, he tried to make a comeback a year ago. 
But you know what? Louis C.K. was very funny, I thought. And I've always had this little sort of charge against com- how comedians are being cancelled. Coming back to the point, what are we trying to get to? We're clearly getting to a point where comedians are going to be nervous. Cartoonists are going to be nervous. Uh, Liza Donnelly, when she spoke with me, was uh, coming from a place of apprehension and fear, I think, of her own life, maybe. We're going to get to a point where certain people who are vocal, organised, maybe not that intelligent. We can bring in QAnon here. We can bring in conspiracy theories about elections. We can bring in 9-11. We can man on the moon. There are flat earthers. We can bring in a cohort that, as you said at the start of the podcast, is fueled by the internet, which can get any old dumb fuck uh, a podium. How do we police it? And, and by the way, we're, 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 we're doing all this in the utter collapse of the fifth estate you know journalism is is dying mm. you know we, we watched a show last night with, with, with the boston globe with spotlight those sorts of investigations can't happen anymore because the papers don't have the money to pay journalists to sleuth for eight months or a year yeah so we're in this maelstrom of or femalestrom of uh daystrom <laughs> daystrom of where, where does it end up what are we trying to get to yeah the power of an idea. An idea has to be dangerous, otherwise it's not an idea. Yeah, it's um, Oscar Wilde. Yeah. How Advertising does, people take note. <laughs> so how this, how this actually came into my mind, a few, it was a while ago, there was a an article in the Irish Times about uh, Trinity College, a big university here, and they have the yes, historical... Yeah, so they have the Historical Society, which is known as the HIST, and it's a, it's a debating society. They had invited Richard Dawkins to speak. He's written a lot about... One of the his, four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. Yeah. So, I, like, I'm a big Dawkins fan. But Dawkins has said some problematic things, some things that I have been deeply disappointed in. I'm still a huge fan of his work. I don't know the man personally, and that's how I separate it. But he was invited to speak, and that was all grand. And then there was uproar, and he was he was disinvited. He's critical of religions in general, but in 2011, he had criticised faith schools and said that he his concern was that Muslim faith schools in particular were the most dangerous or concerning but he had also stated that women who are sexually assaulted should refrain from drinking if they want to be in a position to testify and jail a man now when i had seen those comments i was like oh richard but i really wanted to dive into this because it would be easy for us to sit here and go that's the way it's going and it's everything's being cancelled and it took me a long time of reading through everything i could on the internet to actually get to the bottom of the reality is when he was invited to speak the Hiss Society tends to give a gold medal for somebody with a outstanding contribution to public discourse. And that's, it's kind of, it's just when they invite someone, they tend to give them that. So the reason that some people had objected to it was they didn't want a medal being given to somebody when they kind of go, well, actually, he's problematic. And so the issue was kind of glossed over as in, oh, he's problematic, so he's been cancelled. Here we go again. But when I did dig, and it, it, it kind of worried me how much I had to dig to actually get a mm. full fair story. And the full fair story was that he had been invited to speak and he had said, yeah, but he specifically said he didn't want to come in a debate sense. He wanted to give a speech where there might be a few questions. So there's a, there are different ways in which people are given a platform. And so when you, when you get into cancel culture and who you're going to invite to speak or not, that becomes a little bit different. Like if I'm in the hist and somebody who I think is absolutely awful is invited to speak, I think 
okay, but the reason we have universities are they're, they're traditionally we're supposed to be the brightest minds that are playing with ideas and challenging and being uncomfortable trained. and but but being trained to to challenge things yeah. that are uncomfortable and to use your intellect not to sit there and go let's just cancel everything that makes us uncomfortable. These are supposed to be the brightest minds that are going to be who we depend on when there's the rise of the far right or when there's and sometimes that means somebody who I think is awful might come and visit and I might go well I have a few choices here I can decide I, I wouldn't watch him if he was playing in my back garden I'd pull the curtain so I'm not going to bother my arse going but I'm not going to cry that he can't go and, and, and speak or I can say well I'm going to go and as part of a debating society I'm going to go and I find this person re- really I'm going to take him down because yeah. that's what you're supposed to do put on your big girl knickers in fairness there is a difference with if somebody's being invited with a platform to just speak and is being endorsed the medal but they're not really there's not going to be space for an exchange of ideas well most of most of TED Talks as you mentioned earlier most of the kind of stuff that you see are lectures you mm. know the, the yeah. people go on and then there's questions at the end it doesn't have to be a debate no okay so so I'm okay with him, with him not, not wanting that you know I think you're hitting on a right an interesting point here we're, we're talking about it's infecting colleges yeah so within the HIST so the HIST um, not only is Trinity College one of the oldest universities but this particular society is one of the oldest debating yeah. societies in the world and Oscar Wilde was a member Winston Churchill spoke there some of the debates that they've had recently that have been cancelled are one one motion was that this house believes Middle, Middle Eastern women need Western feminism that was cancelled uh, that this house believes in a thirty two county republic that was or thirty two county Ireland that was cancelled but a debate that was allowed to go ahead was that this house believes sustainable fashion is a lie yeah and if I was a member of that yeah. I'm going sorry. Yeah. We can't talk about anything that might be important or exactly. difficult. We can't like, and that's a debate. That's not giving somebody a platform to come along and say, "Aren't they great?" and give them a medal. This is like debates. So we can't talk. We can't tease out the idea of, as we've been talking about, the the difference between um, respecting other cultures and not wanting to kind of come in with our white saviors and say this is how you should be. But then also going, well, hang on, are we going to turn our back on the more vulnerable people within those? And are, is, our, is our need to be politically correct, sanctimonious and avoiding our duties as human beings to protect the vulnerable? The Thirsty County Ireland would be too problematic or there'd be too many opinions that might offend or that might be, it might just be a bit incendiary. What's the point in having a fucking debate team? There's a, there's a few things going around like Antifa and QAnon and all that stuff and the fact that you know, somebody mentioned that maybe it was a, a stretch for me to suggest in the past podcast that America was was moving towards fascism. And I got a good sum up of what fascism is about mm. uh, because, you know, a lot of people, Americans go on about socialism. There's, there, America's so far away from being a socialist country. It's just unreal. And yet it was front and center in the last election because of uh, free healthcare. Free healthcare is not socialism. Here's the quote on fascism. Fascism is right-wing ultranationalism using demagoguery and gaslighting meant to consolidate corporate power with government, known for scapegoating religious and ethnic groups, rampant corruption, civil rights abuses, and a rabidly obsessive cult of personality, an anti-liberal and anti-intellectual ideology with an extreme hatred of the free press. That's pretty tight for me. Mm. Now, if we get to a point where our young people, our students, are being policed on what they can and can't discuss, I've even had a discussion about, shouldn't you allow a Nazi, shouldn't you allow Steve Bannon to go in front of UCD, Trinity, Harvard, whatever, and talk to students about his beliefs, which are fucking wrong as far as I'm mm. concerned, which are fascist beliefs, 
or we cocoon our children from that, or we cocoon our students from that, because we don't want them to hear this. All that's going to happen, it's not, Steve Bannon doesn't go away. Steve Bannon's followers don't go away. Mm. But that creates the tribalism that you talk about. Yeah, there, there is this narrative that universities are now becoming, they're, they're now kind of falling apart. Ideas are being banned in universities. Speakers are being cancelled. This idea that there's a, there's a crisis. The left would say university's free speech crisis is a right-wing myth. And the right insists that it's rampant. Now, I looked into it and... The reality is it's been a constant debate since the 1960s. And mm. because it's all on the internet now, we kind of suddenly think, oh, it's all going that way. While I am concerned about free speech and, and the idea of ideas being aired, I am concerned about that. But I also think that there is a bit of hyperbole around this. So in the UK, 1974, National Union of Students implemented a policy of no platform for racists and fascists. By the 1980s, conservative students wanted that overturned and the lefty students wanted it broadened to include sexists, homophobes, right-wing politicians. Now that they start going, oh, how, how, are we just going to keep broadening to the people we don't like? Mm. Um, and the media at the time went mad about the freedom of speech and called protesters barbarians. In 86, the Thatcher government insert, inserted clauses to protect free speeches on campuses. But then we also had South African dip- diplomats who were banned by the University of Liverpool in the late 80s. Because of apartheid, right, obviously. Apartheid, yeah. yeah, and conservative students took the university to court for violating the 86 Act. So this has been going on for a long time. The idea that it's suddenly becoming a thing in the, the last 10, 20 years, because there's been a huge culture shift. The idea that this belongs to that is actually false, and I think it's a little bit misleading. Yeah, you know, and, and it look like a, by, by me suggesting that people like this should be given a platform, it makes me look like a far-right-wing fascist who's trying to get yeah. my ideas into the university. Yeah, and okay. so a lot of the, the a lot of the ideas that Which I defend... exactly the opposite. Exactly, like I often find I hate when I have to say this stuff because I, I don't like who I sound like. It's important to me and I want to like discuss where are we going with society even if people I don't like happen to... Like I don't want to change the rules because they happen to suit someone I don't like. I want to... And, and we have to take it apart sometimes and go, well, this isn't working, maybe we need to change that. And like in Ireland, the puritanical progressiveness can get a little bit close to what we had not so long ago, which is the religious conservatism. So like in, in Trinity College in the 80s, there was the, a huge thing about whether David Irving should be invited to speak on campus because he was a Holocaust denier. Like it's, it's going on an awful long time. And You know, let's take, let's take something a little bit less inflammatory of flat earth. You know, should a flat earther be allowed into a college to speak? Now, I think it could be a good comedy show. <laughs> you know, if, if 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 flat Earth was a was an inflammatory thing that was going to cause harm, and it's clearly wrong, and you know that most of the people who are in the college already, students presumably are in, you know have a bit of science and you know, mm. geog- geography about them, and they know this the Earth is clearly not flat, bar a kind of a Doug Stanhope style comedy night mm. where someone seriously goes in and tries to explain to students that the Earth is flat probably doesn't need to be need, need to be yeah said. well you see where, where that gets interesting is we go yeah okay that but then look at how big QAnon is so if you're inviting into the Houston in Trinity a speaker that's affiliated with QAnon just what QAnon is there um, QAnon is so it started on I don't know was it, it wasn't Reddit it was one of these kind 4chan, of 4chan I think it was 4chan it was yeah. 4chan and Q was this person who came out with a lot of these ideas and these conspiracy theories and nobody knew who Q was but so QAnon has become its own thing. It's it's mainly the far right, and it's a lot of anti-vax, 
the richest families in the world are controlling everything, the Illuminati, all of that kind of... Donald Trump is the saviour. 5G is coming to kill us, all this kind of shit. So, like, it's some of it's pretty fucking bizarre. Like, you you say about Flat Earth, what if it's a QAnon person and they're being invited to come in and speak? And then I go, well, we have to have institutions like universities, particularly fantastic universities, where it's the brightest and best. We have to have this thing where we learn to kind of in a respectful way, take it apart and debate it. Now, but I do understand that it could become dangerous when there's a debate raging in the country. If there's a referendum coming up, there's an idea that we have to have balance. The problem with balance is it can falsely legitimise an idea. And I think all ideas can be aired. We can discuss the ideas. But I do think we do need to be careful about how we do that. And if we're creating balance between kind of ridiculous, unfounded ideas, and it almost can create this narrative that that's quite legitimate and and founded. But the BBC have been caught out on this because the BBC's charter is to give both sides of every argument. They got caught out of the particularly about climate change, where they were giving equal equal weight mm. to climate change deniers. Now they've changed that, but you can quickly see how, right to the very start of the podcast, sixty eight percent of Republicans now think the election is rigged mm. because certain media channels have focused in on Donald Trump's message. Other ones shut him off because there's no, quite rightly, if they're Mm. a news channel, this is not news, this is propaganda, this is a guy making up, you know, fables because he didn't win an election. Mm. Now, if it it comes out that there is bucket loads of fucking burnt votes or whatever, fine, we all all, all, report that. But I mean, that's the the university thing. Uh, So so basically, I'm, I'm looking at the idea that it might not all have been, I'm offended, therefore don't bring him, that there were other aspects to that. But... In terms of the Richard Dawkins thing, so the auditor of the HIST um, said on Twitter when he when he was disinvited, the auditor said she had not been aware of Dawkins' comments on Islam and sexual assault until this evening. The society will not be moving ahead with this address as we value our members' comfort above all else. Now that final sentence changes things for me because the idea that the most important thing when pursuing an education is that you be free from any discomfort is alarming. It's deeply alarming. I'm trying to find the truth of how much of it is that we're offended and we don't want anyone to be uncomfortable and how much of it is, no, no, that wasn't the issue. The issue is that we don't wish to endorse somebody, but they're fine to come and speak or that we want it done in a respect, in a responsible way. And the way that was being done was, was being, was glorifying and endorsing and not allowing a free exchange of ideas when somebody is kind of problematic. But that's nothing to do with discomfort then. Which is it? Because I have a huge issue with people being cancelled because they may cause discomfort. The solution not only if you want to have freer speech, but also to avoid things like there being an, a strange balance struck that can be dangerous in spreading baseless ideas and pseudoscience. So we do need to find a way to police it in such a way that doesn't silence other ideas, but is responsible with how those ideas are brought forward, make sure that there's enough space, that they're not they're falsely legitimised. Mm. But that can't be about comfort. Yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a, a pretty sizable, including myself, uh, proportion of people in Ireland who are very pro the Palestinian struggle against Israel, because it mirrors not only, it's not unlike uh, what we've gone through with the British um, during our uh, lifetime as a country. And there's Israel and, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my best friends are Jews, but like, you know, there's, I don't think, I don't think criticizing Israel, the concept of Israel is uh, necessarily anti-Semitic. I think that we have a situation here where there's stuff that both sides have got mm. an argument on that needs to be discussed. And just because you say, I am actually very well prepared to listen to and understand 
the gripes and moans of uh, the Palestinian people does not mean I am mm. anti-Semitic. It means that Israel has a... But I've noticed lately, stuff. particularly lately, I've noticed the extent of difference between the UK and Ireland. So the politically correct opinion in Ireland is generally we tend to be kind of pro-Palestine. Mm. We tend to be very critical of Israel, but anti-Semitism is in no way okay. And I personally, that would be my stance as well, but that is the politically correct opinion. And I've been discovering that that is absolutely not any criticism of Israel as a state in the UK and an awful lot of people who agree with the or the, the same the same so the same cohort of people you get people aged 30 who are all left wing pro trans rights but so all of the same the same people the English people if you if you criticize Israel or have any support for Palestine they will straight away you are anti-semitic you are a Nazi you are cancelled but the very same people who have identical ideologies on everything else in Ireland will go no no we don't agree with anti-Semitism, but we are critical of the Israeli state. And that's perfectly fine. But the fine. Zionist would say that they are the same. You know, you criticise Israel, you criticise mm. anti-Semitic. Come back to the point of, you know, what I asked at the start, which is where are we trying to get? In my view, we're trying to get to a point where, I suppose in a very, very macro level, we're, we're, we're almost religious in the sense that we need to understand the golden rule of doing right by other people and get treat people the way we'd like to be treated, which includes everyone from trans, trans people to Zionists to racists, whatever. We need to try and also have the best possible outcomes for the most amount of people. Yeah. As a next layer down, which would include, you know, we're, 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 we're all talking about all of these tiny issues, whereas we're all prepared, as you said, to let people starve to death for decades in, in Africa. We don't really treat ourselves as a human species properly. And then we go down to the third level, I think, which is we need to remove, you know, things like colour of skin or, or, you know, man wearing dress or woman wearing, you know, or whatever it is. We need to make it a non-issue and so that people are judged on their character and intelligence mm. and personality in the same way that we don't care really, unless you're ginger joke, but, you know, we don't care about people's hair colour. And if we can get to yeah. that point, so, uh, we the, will have the a... The issue with that, I see what you mean, but the issue with that, as I see it, is that, like, if you if you go back 50 years, we're going, like, what we wanted was we wanted, if you take race, for example, we wanted white people to stop treating black people like they're different, to stop judging them or thinking they're not worthy of a job or not worthy of the same respect. Stop, I'm a person, stop seeing me as a black yeah. person. Whereas if you say that now, I think that would be a problem much more for the oppressed because you're saying well okay I don't want us to suddenly say because I, do, I don't see colour is a problematic thing to say now because uh, understandably people of colour are saying well no hang on I don't want us to suddenly stop seeing colour because now that we've all accepted it's not okay to be racist I want you all to pay attention to the fact that it affects me adversely so please p- take note of the fact that I'm a person of colour because it's affecting me adversely so we're not past that yet. Okay, but there's good faith, bad faith interpretations of that statement. So the good faith interpretation of that statement is as it says. Mm. So we don't have any fucking racism, okay? That's the good actor yeah. inter- interpretation. The bad actor interpretation of it is, look, we, we don't believe in racism. We're not racist. We believe everyone. And, and that's where uh, people of colour will go, Fuck you. Mm. It's still here. Yeah. Everywhere, right? I need you to see race. I need you to see gender. I need yeah. you to see all of these things because we're not past racism and sexism exactly. and all of these things. So I'm talking about where are we aiming for? Mm. We're aiming for that point where 
if you're black or white, it's like your blonde yeah. hair or black hair or redhead. What we would matter. like in the future would be to be past, be a post-racial society. Yeah, and I can still take the piss out of you because you're black, because you have red hair, because it doesn't matter. And you're, or I'm a bit chubby, people can call me chubby, whatever. It, as long as it's not massively offensive and really upsetting people. So our innate sense of humor is not lost in all of this, that we can still, you know, back to Doug Stanhope, we should be able to play with this thing, mm. play with cancer, play with things that are terribly well, for tragic. Instance, there's an awful lot of messing. And I'm, by the way, I'm not, when I say this, I'm not saying, well, black people make fun of white people. So why can't we, like, I've yeah. no, I have no desire to make fun of race, yeah. but I often see like on the likes of TikTok, there'll be funny shit. I mean, there's the Karen shit, but there's, there's also like, there, I saw a video of like, these two black girls were call- calling out like real white girl names and when they called them out they just pissed themselves like, and it was, it, but it was actually funny and there are sometimes uh, there are, like, there are, there'd be black comedians that make fun of uh, saying there's no such thing as white culture you go swimming you have little dogs that have little outfits and and they'll poke fun at like like, re- like the, that is the whitest thing I've ever heard and that but it doesn't cause hurt and I understand that if that were reversed right now that would cause a huge amount of hurt so I don't want to be going well they make fun of I fucking laugh when I see when black comedians make fun of the whitest things they've ever heard of it's fucking funny yeah. and right now I don't think it'll be funny to, to but I, I, I see your point that wouldn't it be nice to get to the point that problems are so far behind us that it becomes funny again yeah. that we're made po- like you can make fun of, like sometimes you'll make fun of me for being a knack <laughs> you go uh, like we would have a different socioeconomic background. I can rip the piss out of you for your posh boy yeah, shit. Yeah. And I go, okay, was that beside the swimming pool? And how many times? But like, I, you also know it might not be nice for you to take the piss out of somebody belonging to me if they didn't speak well, if they hadn't got the, the, the privilege of such a great education. It wouldn't be nice to punch down. But you know, if you slag me about, is that is that what it's like in Tala? Are there horses in the background? Yeah. I'll piss myself laughing. And the, but I don't have hurt over because... Yeah, I'm from Tala, but I don't actually have it. And I don't tend to be discriminated because I don't sound like I'm from Tala. So there's no hurt there for me. Yeah. And it would be nice if on issues of gender, of race, of, right now, I don't think it would be, be funny to, to punch down, but it'd be nice to get to the point where it's not punching down and black people and white people could slag messing just the mm-hmm. same way we'll slag about me and my horse's piebald pony in the garden. And I'll well, slag yeah, you when, about, you know. When I was in America, there were a number of my mates who were, african-american and we could just go to town each other because we were friends the same way that my friends here could go to town there's no part of them mm. going oh you big racist or whatever like it was done we still and i got we, we i don't think we're going to cure this on this podcast but we're always going to come back to the line in the sand of who decides what is the mark to overstep. there are clear marks to overstep mm. That yeah. are out there, they're going to ask fucking too. That's beyond the pain. There are some that are obvious. I mean, and then no, there's you're... walking a line, and then there's this side, and we can't. You know what? What goes for you doesn't even go for me. Not to mind our listeners. Yeah. And that I think encapsulates the biggest problem. I think so. I think, as you said, there are there are some things that are you know we all know. For instance, it's not okay to go out and call someone the n word. Yeah. I and I think it should be fair enough that you know if you're in the workplace and you or you're a transgender and your pronouns are your pronouns i think it's like well sure. it's it's harassment to continually misgender yeah. someone intentionally so th- these are the things like it or not where it goes beyond that is to start trying to police how people feel and how, what they find funny there are certain rules of society that we go along with and the idea that well, you can't force me to use someone's pronouns. You go, well, hang on. If you're in the workplace, you could be fired for continuing calling someone a bitch. So we do actually police the way people behave. There are certain societal rules. 
decent behaviour goes beyond the rules, but we can't police what our personal taste is for beyond that we have to have certain rules in society in terms of where it becomes harassment, where it's not acceptable, whether you personally believe it or not. If you want to be homophobic, if you want to be racist, you're actually entitled to be racist and homophobic. What you're not entitled to do is racially abuse people. If it's your problem internally, that's fine. You could be homophobic and, and not really like gay people. What you're not entitled to do is make their life harder. And that's and that, people don't like the idea. But we don't want... No, I don't want people to be homophobic and racist. But that's we have to stop policing what people think and how they feel. But we do have to have certain rules for society. That the line between those two things are being... There is a... a, a problem with the left particularly they're, they're losing the boundary there where it becomes your business and when it's not your business anymore we're nothing if not an equal opportunities uh employer when it comes to bigotry and whatever else the mind feels that we've stepped on today just know that none of it is coming from a place of evil none of it is coming from a place of insult and none of it is coming from a place other than maybe we need to be able to have conversations and tease out these issues Mm. which are absolutely not black and white are absolutely different from case or or subject to subject but need to be discussed for us to go forward as a species into the future yeah and i'd like to add to that while i reserve the right to offend people i actually hope i haven't offended anybody and i hope that anything i've said hasn't caused hurt and if it has i I'd, I'd like to hear a different i'd like to be wrong about something i'd like to hear you know i think you're wrong about that and here's why so while i'm entitled to offend i actually hope i haven't offended someone and i'm sorry if i have i'll do a pre apology as well i have not intended to offend anybody tonight in our discussion some of you are probably only tuning in for this bit. Uh, you've missed a, you've missed an interesting uh, debate between myself and the Don. The other part of our podcast is the Don is nearing the end of her top twenty countdown of the best episodes in her mind of a pint with Shawnee B. We had one hundred and forty four guests again. Thank you to all of those of you who are still contributing to my Patreon page. It's still available if anyone wants to. You know, I like to say if you want to buy me a pint every month, that would be fantastic. It's www.patreon.com backslash Shawnee B. And uh, that keeps the podcast going. Every little helps. We're here to unveil number three in the Dawn's Top 20 countdown. As ever, she gives me a little clue or two to see if I can recognize the guest that I spoke to over the last five years. What's the first clue today? Okay, the first quote is... (laughs) This agenda where no one can be offended, it's a dangerous place to go down because who's to say who's offended? My work's offensive to huge amounts of people, but I defend my right to do it. See how I wove that in there? Yeah, you always do this. It's very good. Um, who's, who's work is offensive to lots of people? Giles? Nope. Okay, what's the second one? Uh, second one is a quote that this guest actually loves and quoted which is beware artists, they mix with all levels of society and therefore the most dangerous. Oh, I should be getting this. Uh, it's not Leon, though. Nope. Okay, here's the third one. You'll get it on the third one. You do things, you don't really know what you're doing, but that's the beauty of art. That's the beauty of writing a song or making a mosaic or any creative uh, pursuit. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie Reichardt. So Carrie's a... Crazy, crazy lady. She's got her whole house 
decked out in mosaic. She's a mosaicist and artist and agitator and actually has a lot of views that would be different to mine on things like vaccinations and stuff like that. So, you know, she's also a friend, has a very interesting uh, life story to tell, uh, she, including her abhorrence of the death penalty. Uh, and she has not only spoken out about that, but she's walked the She's walked her talk on that by, um, I think, on three occasions. She's pen paled with um, people on death row and gone over to see them being executed. So, what was your? Yeah, so um, I met Gary. I like her like that. Um, I intended on saving this particular interview because it's it's a great one. It's a great story. But also, I thought it was great for the the conversation we're having today because, like mm. that, I'd have some differences of opinions on certain things with Carrie, but she's not cancelled because I think she's no. great and she she has some really intelligent viewpoints. And we can't cancel everybody that believes in different things than we do. Mm. So she talk, talks about political correctness and art and the importance of that. But I also thought it was quite funny that the ultimate cancel culture is death penalty. So yeah, <laughs> so she was the perfect right. interview for this particular conversation. Yeah. Carrie Reichardt, thank you for being a guest on my show. It was a fantastic interview, and here it is. We'll see you next time. Welcome to another pint uh, with Shawnee B. We're coming to you from Chiswick in London. Carrie Reichardt is a ceramic artist and has just been appointed the first ever visual artist in residence for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. She's a very strong and funny lady. And I'm welcoming Carrie Reichardt to a pint with Shawnee B. We're about to have some wine, but it's chilling in the freezer, so you might hear that later. How are you? Yes, we're actually going to have some Prosecco, aren't Prosecco. we? It's a Prosecco. Some fizzy, it's a rainy, horrible day in London, even though it's supposed to be spring, but spring hasn't sprung yet. Now, the thing I want to talk about is, first of all, at the end of the podcast, you will see a link to Carrie's house and her house is probably one of the most original houses I've certainly ever seen in the whole world not to mind in London it is completely covered over three stories front and back with ceramic art so you are a ceramic artist explain to my listeners what ceramic art is and explain how this amazing house came about well I'm not sure if I can explain exactly what ceramic art is and I'm and also I'm a multimedia artist really I mean I do a lot of work in ceramics and mosaics but I also work in photography performance sculpture mixed media but I suppose I'm really well known for my house which is mosaic so about 21 years ago mm-hmm. I was working as a community artist doing mosaics my background's actually in sculpture I have a first class degree in sculpture but um, I couldn't really do what I was doing then because I was working with casting and resin and cancerous materials and I'd had a child and so mm. I guess I was looking for a different medium to work in and I just decided to make a mosaic in the right. garden and then as soon as I did it you know it was literally like a light goes did on you? yeah I was just like oh my so god so explain what mosaics and ceramics are for people who don't know they're glass and well, pottery I mean, and ceramics and... most people know what mosaics is it's yeah. broken pieces of either glass or ceramic put yeah. together going right back to Roman time that's not really what my mosaics are like because I come from a fine art background I tend to see my work really now as a collage I use tiles I print onto them cut them up and put them back together again and make murals using tiles. Right. But the house is over a 21-year period, yeah. so some of it is just made with little small shards of glass, and some of it is tiled, some yeah. of it is where I've actually made objects in ceramics and embedded them. So really, you're looking at me 
learning my craft over 21 years. So the house is in a, a leafy uh, suburb of Chiswick on a road with lots of other houses next to it. It's an old, I guess, pre-war building. You did one in your back garden. And then you, what, what made you say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover the whole house with this. Well, a couple of things kind of came together. Like I said, I was doing community art. Mm. And whenever you do public art, community art, my experience is there's always some steering committee that's like you get yeah. paid more than you to oversee Client. what you do. Yes. <laughs> and I got kind of fed up with being told what I couldn't do. You yeah. know, I was working on a huge public library in Harold Hill and we had a symbol to say stop burning the trees and we were told we couldn't use it because it might incite arson. You know, I don't know that many kids that look at a mosaic and go, you know what, let's set fire to, to something. Forest, or, yeah. And it was all about recycling. And so we'd worked with some kids and they'd come up with this logo that said, don't murder the planet, the planet bleeds too. And it had the world with a tear coming out of blood. And they said, oh, you can't use that, that's depressing. And they right. made us change it to the environment is everywhere, yeah. which is meaningless. Yeah. You know, they want these platitudes. You know, the trouble is with a lot of public art. Somebody's worried about their job. Someone's worried about offending. Yeah. And I mean, this is 21 years ago. So worse now. A lot worse. And so at that time, I was getting fed up with those kind of um, censorship of what I was mm. doing. And it was around Christmas time. And I bought myself a book called Fantasy Art, Fantasy Worlds, places around the world where people had mosaic their houses or created these huge environments yeah and i was looking at it and it was really funny because my dad had said to me oh why don't you put some mosaics outside and you know say like mosaicist within to yeah. advertise what you do and i suddenly thought why don't i just mosaic the house <laughs> and you certainly did I, i'm just gonna mosaic my house yeah and at the time, I used to joke, it would probably take me 20 years, and, and it, it did. did, you know. You have a funny story about the totem pole, which was one of the first bills which is out the front. There's a, a three-story high. Is it a totem pole? Whatever. Well, it's a tiki it's totem a, it's pole. It's a tiki totem pole, I mean, but there was a little old lady well, story. Well, the thing is, well, the front of the house on the lower half, one is like an Alice in Wonderland, quintessential British scene with fly garret mushrooms and naughty mandrakes and things. And the other side, I, I was into tiki art and mm. all that Polynesian art. And so there's this giant tiki totem on the top. And Mary lives over the road, who was like my other mother, she has to be said. She was lovely. She just moved away, unfortunately. But she came over and she went, oh, Carrie, what have you done? You've put a 12-inch penis on the front of your house. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Mary, that's your dirty mind. That's a tiki totem pole. She's like, oh, Carrie, it's got a scrotum and everything. And it's yeah. like, it does. It says, oh, come all you faithful at the top of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because years later I was in therapy and my therapist talked about my house and I said, would you like to see it? And she said, well, yeah, I would like to see your house. So I showed her a picture and she went, why do you have this great big phallic object on your house? And yeah. I was like, oh, you know what? I don't Last actually... thing you need to tell us. I'm not actually quite sure, but it, looking back, it's partly because all of that was partly designed by my partner at that time. Yeah, so yeah. I very consciously decided that we'd have loads of vaginas on the next <laughs> section up, which are all hidden. Now, <laughs> Mary accepting, at any point did some finger wagger from the council come well, tutting to no, your door? I mean, when I started doing it, I was absolutely obsessed that I would have this day in court. I mean, and I used to collect articles and followed various cases. Like, I don't know if you know about that guy who has a shark that goes into his roof. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'd followed that case and he'd won from the human rights. He went all the way to Europe and won that okay. right. And there was a woman in Twickenham who'd painted her house bright pink. 
And so I'd followed these cases yeah. and I knew the law. I know that the law states that I was allowed to put stone cladding, pebble dashing or tiling on the front of my house. The law doesn't say you can't mosaic your house in yeah. loads of bright colours because nobody yeah. does it. <laughs> what the law says is people can complain. If enough of them complain, the council can do something. Mm. But the reality is, is I think someone local tried to set up a petition and there wasn't enough names on there. There wasn't enough of an outrage. I truly believe it's partly because it was by increments. It was very slow. It's tiled. It's mosaic. If it was painted. But if it was painted, I think people would say, you know, that's terrible. Paint it over. But when you're talking about mosaics, you talk about having to physically remove it. It's so funny because each time I put it up, I go, oh, I can't believe I've got away with this naughty mandrake. I've got away with this. And... On the back, I started putting all power to the people and the revolution is now and it was about death row. And I always kind of thought, if they come after me now, they'll have to say, well, I don't like that, what you've said. It would have to be about what I've actually, the actual artistic thing is and not the fact that I've mosaiced my house. And it's like... What if it started now? If somebody like you was at year zero now that was going to take 20 years, do you think... Just well, the sort no, of I know nanny a friend. that goes on. Well, I know someone up in um, Birmingham, my friend who's Caroline, who's started to mose her. Okay. Hers isn't really full of revolutionary text and weird things. But I personally think that most people like it. Yeah. We like art. Yeah. Yeah. It's also like, to me, I mean, there's a, there's a lovely house I have an eye on in Dublin, which I have absolutely not got the funds to buy. But it's a very iconic house on the banks of the canal. And I walk by it every day. And I, I was I was saying to my girlfriend while we were walking by, you know, it would be great if we could buy that and just pay Carrie like a hundred grand to come over and do it. Like with all the Irish writers that use the canal as motivation and inspiration, Patrick Cavan and all these guys. And it would be a kind of an iconic gift to Ireland. Do you know that wouldn't Because I, I can't imagine someone buying this house after you're gone and well, going, Well, this is the problem I have now. You know, this is the problem. Who's going to buy well, it? It's I got my it, mother's name on the front and it's all about death row on the back. I mean, it... You, it but you will find somebody who will get what it is all about and will pay him. You know, and anyone who says, okay, and we strip down all of that, it's, they must have ice in their hearts to do it because well, of the like, unfortunately of mosaics often do get removed so many of the most amazing ones the ones that were at a station in, yeah. uh, have been removed they're amazing ones that have been removed from all kinds of cities they don't mm. mosaics is universally loved yeah. you, know, you only have to look at Barcelona you only have to yeah. look at the places in the world where mad people like me have spent their life mosaicing things yeah. to know that these become the number one tourist attractions yeah, yeah. it's a universally popular art form but I don't think it's it doesn't have the reverence it should have in mm. this country for sure because it all falls into that decorative arts world but Gaudi would be an inspiration or not yeah, yeah, no, Gaudi is. If you look at what he was doing, he was so advanced. He yeah. was into recycling. He was into ergonomics. He was yeah. very advanced. Mm. And apparently he died stepping back to look at his piece. Yeah, he got it was, run over. Yes, yeah. and they didn't know who he was. They thought he was a poor person, so he was left to die. Mm. And yet when the people found out, there were huge, massive demonstrations. And It's always the way. You make your money when you're dead mm. in art. Now, you also, um, let's get into this bit. You also are very open, outspoken, you believe in removing the stigma attached to mental illness. I mean, when I first uh, saw you present in, in Cork that time, you had a piece of art which was uh, extremely disturbing and shocking and, and it was the cutting art. Tell me a little bit about your views on that, your childhood, how you developed, because I know that you feel a lot of the way you were brought up has led to you being in this position right now and you're not afraid to talk about it. Well, 
When I look back now, I realise that I used art as a form of therapy. You know, my way of dealing with emotions, to deal with the world, to deal with injustice is through an artistic, creative response. Mm -hmm. And in times in my life when I haven't been involved in a creative process, I've been extremely unwell. You know, I have suffered from mental illness and problems mm. a large part of my life. Most of my life has been happy accidents, you know, mm. I've just ended up on something and done it. What but was I, your background? Where were you born and brought up? I was born in Chiswick. Oh, I moved okay. into this house when I was 16. My dad right. had it, you know, this is my parents' first house. Right. And uh, my dad was a landlord, so he has all these houses that are very Rigsby-ish. I've lived in every room in this house as a bedsit, moved here when I was 16 and did yeah. a course called FIDAS, which was Films, English, Drama and Art Studies, which right. was very bohemian, fantastic. I went from being bored to death at secondary school to suddenly being in an environment of like 12 kids. So we were taken to the Theatre of Cruelty to study Arto. We were taken to wow. see quite shocking plays and introduced to all these different concepts and things. So, And when you were little, were you artistic? Was it a happy listen, life I am not. I, the, the joke in my family, like my brother laughs about the fact that I had a first class degree because I couldn't draw and I couldn't paint. <laughs> I was a kid that made things. Mm. I was that kid that followed Blue Peter and sat there for hours and made what Corn was on Cornflakes, boxes and all that. Yeah, I was a... When I look back, I can tell that I really was someone that did tapestries. I did sewing. Mm. I'm always busy. But I realise now that I didn't have confidence. I wanted to draw and I wanted to paint, but I couldn't produce the work that was realistic in my own mind. And mm. so I would use photocopies. I would find ways to create things without actually having to draw them. I think a large part of my life is I can tell how insecure I was about things, but how desperately I needed to actually produce things and yeah. make things and create things for my own sanity. Do you look back on your early childhood as a happy time or a sad time? Or According to my mother, I was very happy as a child, and I'm sure I was, and I look at my youngest and I see, because she's on the autistic spectrum, and I can see that maybe I was... Similar. on that spectrum and left to my own devices left making things I was a happy child I think most things went wrong for me in puberty most right. things went wrong for me in trying to fit into secondary school most things it's hard to pinpoint where yeah. these things happened I have a very strange father and we all kind of left home when we were young to kind of get away from him to a degree but right. It's hard to know what started first. Did I take drugs because I was unhappy or was yeah. I unhappy because I took drugs? Now, when I look back, and I've been in therapy for a long time, I found social situations difficult. And so, mm. like so many people I know, my way to deal with that was to very quickly go to drinking and go to drugs. Did you feel different from everybody? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people who I interview on this say that. I'm the youngest of four. And I've always felt like the black sheep of my yeah, family. Yeah, I understand. My nickname when I was growing up was Hey But The Parrot because whenever anyone was talking in my family, I'd be going, Hey, Hey, Hey But to try and... And they'd call me Hey But The Parrot. You're trying um, to get a word in. Yeah. I think a lot of it is more insecurity than feeling different. As a child, you get defences. Yeah. And those defences, my defences, is probably that kind of anarchic, I don't care, yeah. don't want to be there anyway. So what age were you when you started dabbling or getting into drugs or what memories of that like? Oh, God, I think the sooner they went to my first parties when really? I was 15, right. you know, it would just be drinking a bottle of martini as quick as you can. So when you finished your schooling, you went to college 
Well, my first degree was actually film. I only lasted a term. I dropped out of that and became a tax collector for a year. <laughs> the irony. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> you have to learn about what you don't. Yeah. And then um, I saved up money and I went travelling. I went to India. I went to Nepal. I travelled around America for six months. What age were you at this stage? That was when I was 18, 19. And then I came, I came back and decided to go back to college. And I went and did an art foundation. And at that point, I wanted to do theatre design. But just before I went to do my foundation, I was sexually assaulted on the way home late at night. I had a nervous breakdown. Mm. I was attacked in the summer. I started an art foundation. And it was really funny because at the end of this course, when they look at your portfolio, I'd managed to turn every single art exercise into a way of dealing with being attacked. Yeah. I can always remember we had to design a poster for um, children's playground. Mine just had scaffolding with ominous men hiding in the back. It's so weird when I look at it, because at the time I wasn't conscious of this. The end of year, I'd made a two-minute film called Ode to Love, which really was intercutting those kind of... Do you remember those snuff movies at the time? Jonah Killer and all of those. I was intercutting that with pictures of women and without knowing it, I'd engaged in this whole year of art therapy trying to process that. To segue away just while we're on this subject, the whole Me Too thing that's happening now, where do you sit on that? It's a difficult one because as much as I recognise what's happened historically... I think we're in danger of creating a world where nobody knows how to even be. I read somewhere that in universities in America, you sign contracts where you're not allowed... You know, if you have sex when you're drunk now, it could be held up in a court of law that there was no consent. Well, no one I know would ever have sex in the beginning unless they were drunk. You know, I think we're going into a... And you have all the personal pronouns thing, 31 different types. No, I don't... Well, see, I don't agree with that. I can't. Yeah, I know, same. There's a realisation and that people want to do something about it and I'm glad, but it's this thing where like, okay, Chuck Close all these other, where these artists yeah. and they want to remove their work. Well, you're going to have to remove all of Picasso's work. Yeah. You're going to have yeah. to remove Egon Schiller's work. You're yeah. going to have to remove most people's work if yeah. you start judging them by these things. When you focus on these famous people and they become these big stories and everybody talks about it, what we need to look at is more institutionalised things where this happens. You know, let's focus on the church. Let's focus on our care homes. There is terrible things happening on a huge scale, but I Mm. think the media likes to pick up on one thing and hang them out to dry and Mm. it becomes that. But one of the big themes in your work is, you know, for want of a better word, sauciness and females using sexuality in a way that would would be very almost working man's club sort of well, stereotype, work, but with a very biting well, I think angle my, to it. My work definitely pushes boundaries. Yeah. And, and my work has to come from someone of my age. The funny yeah. thing is, is I think a lot of things are generational. You yeah. have a generation now who go, we're not having this. We yeah. want it our way. They're very much leading an agenda. You know, this agenda where no one can be offended. It's a dangerous place to go it down is, because yeah. who's to say who's offended? You know, my work's offensive to huge amounts of people, yeah. but I defend my right to do it. Yeah. Lots of people like my work and lots of people don't. And even now, you know, I'm getting accused of a cultural appropriation and getting told that somebody would be offended. They're not offended, but somebody else will be offended. Mm. And I think that being offended about artwork is the least of our problems, given the state of the country. It's a divisive. But it's also dangerous. Yes. Because we have to, you know, all revolutions sound with start with the sound of one voice usually like your point that you made about your generation if you think about it and we're similar generation if you think about today 
you know, artists need to start coming out and taking the piss out of all these pronouns that are gathering. Like, okay, I know it can be, oh, my rights, my rights as a human being, I want you to call me they or blip or whatever they're, whatever, whatever. There's 31 of them apparently in America now. And apparently if you don't use them, uh, then you're in I think Canada, in Canada it's, it's illegal. 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 I think in Canada, you can I think you're allowed to still call people the N word because that's not a criminal offence. But you yeah. have to refer to someone by their correct yeah. noun. And we need to have, you know, in Jordan Peterson, the, the sort of Canadian, I don't know, intellectual who keeps getting thrown the word supremacist at him just because he offends who, what's his people. Name? Jordan Richard. Peterson. He was the guy who got caught. He, he was on the television recently talking about gender equality with a woman on Channel 4 who was just acting like a complete fuckwit as, as far as I'm concerned. I don't agree with everything he says, but I agree with the fact that we need people like this who are trying to find truth. And if you're trying to find truth, you're going to tread on a few toes. You're going to say things that people go, oh, get all offended with. If we have no comedian in the room taking the pit, if we have no court jester, you're a court jester. You putting a woman with tits on a playing card and, you know, something provocative on Okay, so all of that disappears. Well, no, well then we're in. We're in. I'm an Big artist. Brother. I'm not a politician. Yeah, I'm here to make commentary, to express things, and the same way you have comedians. Mm. I do believe if you're not allowed to express things, it can get really nasty. I think yeah. you know, with political correctness the way that it is, yeah. you end up with people in the ballot votes yeah. going and voting for people like Trump. Well, I, and yes, anyone I'm... who knows my politics knows the type of person I am. Mm. But I'm going to defend my right to make the artwork that I want to. Absolutely. Work. There's also the line though that says you don't call people nigger. You know, you don't go around beating up Packies and Leicester. You don't you treat people with disrespect, no matter what colour, creed or religion they are. You don't throw acid in Muslim people's faces just because they're wearing a hijab. There's certain laws of human decency that we need to keep and know when it's being fun and when it's not fun. I often make the thing, you know, if people call me Mick or Paddy, I'm cool with that. But then somebody might call me Mick and Paddy in a bar fight, and I'm not cool with it. And it, it, you know when you're offending. In the same way with the Me Too thing, people know when... A man knows, in my view, when he's overstepping them. If a woman says, I don't want to have sex with you, and a man continues to try and have sex with that woman, you know in your heart when you're overstepping them. You know when you're being aggressive and racist and horrible to some to another human being. You know it. And it's usually clear. But then someone jumps in and goes, oh, I haven't read your book, but I think it's offensive. There's there's all of this going on. To segue this into um, the the art I mentioned earlier about the, the cutting piece. That was after my degree. It shows you how old I am. So there's a, there's a jump in here after you did your film stuff. Did, you went I, up I to went to Leeds, Leeds and, and I did a degree in sculpture. You know, I was so influenced by feminist art because it was a big explosion of it in the late 80s. I started yeah. my degree in 89. So I was on the heels of all of that kind of uh, wave of feminism. A lot of my work was all about the body. It was all about women's position in the world. And I and it was all much to do with body casting. So I did all this work. I did my degree. I liked making work, but I didn't really like the process of being at art college. And I left and I said, I'll never do art again. I don't want to do it. I literally worked in Safeways for six months, saved up money, and I went to 
Israel and I spent six months in Israel and Egypt and then I came back and I worked. Well, like kibbutz or something? Yeah, right. all that kibbutz, Moshav, mm. traveling. And then I came back and then I saved up again and then I went to Costa Rica and I traveled from Costa Rica to Mexico City and back again, which was just amazing. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately I discovered cocaine big time when I was in Central you America. You do out there. <laughs> yeah, it's quite I mean, plentiful. great when I was there. It was terrible when I came back. Yeah. It was another case where I kind of had a breakdown. I became someone who worked with adults with learning disabilities. So for nearly two years, I was working in care work, which by the end of it, I'd had a complete nervous breakdown. I couldn't cope. I was, you know. It must be a really hard job to do that because it just, people it are just, dying. And they're it's in, not that they're dying. It's just there's a limit to care work. Some people are nice carers, some aren't. Yeah. You, you know that. And it's quite a heavy burden. And I was promoted really quickly. I became the registered state manager of a house. So I was... It was my job to resettle two people out of long-term institutions. I was the manager. I'd only yeah. had eight months training. I worked with people who had extreme epilepsy. Well, they probably thought I was a really good worker because I was on speed all the time. And I was like very efficient. <laughs> and um, when I put my mind to things, I'm good at most mm. things I do. So, but basically, but would I, you say you have empathy? Yes, yeah, I, I have a lot have a, of empathy yeah. because I... Behind you are very strong, like exterior. There's a I have pairing. a lot of empathy because I've suffered a lot with yeah. my own trauma and recognise that. But when I had been in Belize, I'd met a squaddie who I'd fallen in love with who came back and bought himself out of the army and came to live with me and was at a time of ecstasy. We were yeah. like partying a lot too much and he walked out of my life and I had a complete nervous breakdown, just literally like everything just went in that moment in time. And that was when I became a real chronic self-harmer. So what age were you now, 23? No, I was 24. 24, right. 24, and it was just a brief moment in my life. And I don't even know how I started. I don't know where it came mm. from. My addictions and my way of dealing things will find a vehicle. If, if it's not feeding myself food, I'll be drunk or I'll yeah. be speed or, or it managed to turn itself into self-harming. And so for this year of my life, I was doing self-harming and also you have to remember this is 94 this is way before anyone talked about it way yeah. before it was ever acknowledged as a thing i had no context to it is it mainly women who self-harm than men or is it women usually take anger out on themselves right. whereas men will tend to go beat someone yeah. up i think Indeed. you know i think if it's a generalization but i know I think yeah i just don't, tend I don't i'm not conscious of hearing women, a lot of men who women tend that. to process things mm. as their anger is turned inward at the time I was doing it, I kind of decided to make a piece of art about it. I had a friend who was a photographer and I was like, could you come around and take some photos for me? And he was like, yeah, carry on, come round." And he came round, and I always remember I went in the bathroom and I just cut myself up and I came out and he was like, oh my God, hey. I can't do this. I've got yeah. to leave. And yeah. I was like, no, please, this is important to me. I need mm. to document this. And he was like, no, no, this is too fucked up, I'm leaving. And so I was like trying to hold a camera and take pictures. And he kind of went, oh, God's sake, move over. And then he kind of went into a world where he was... Documenting Well, something. yeah, but he'd abstract what was happening. And he was like literally looking for nice shots. And he'd yeah. gone into a photographer and he took... He's professional. Yeah, and he took all these <laughs> photos. And then we made these beautiful boxes. They are beautiful, And yeah. he had them inlaid. He helped me, my friend Nigel, and though he had glass, and I'd written and I'd spoken to lots of women who'd self-harmed and I'd got reasons for them why they did it. Yeah. And I had it all beautifully etched yeah. onto glass and presented it. And I also had this 
six foot by four foot aluminium sheet printed with a photo of where my I'd cut my wrist. So yeah. it was a real close up of these little blue stitches in my wrist. And yes. I don't know if you've ever cut your wrists. No, it I all bruises. No. It all goes yeah. bruised. And so I had this intense photo and it was called stitched up good and proper and the thing is is that for some people it's like you're nuts but for me making art kind of somehow took me out of myself and it gave it a kind of a different focus it enabled me to find something out of this trauma that was kind of good yeah. because i was explaining it i was sharing it and so i made this whole body of work it was only ever exhibited Three times. But there was an issue with the photo lab, right? Yeah, I mean, because I was having all this stuff made at Boots, and I decided to make a dinner service where, <laughs> at the time, you could have placemats and cup mats, and you could have right. it all printed up. And so I had them printed all up, and then I... It sounds really naff now, but I wrote pain in my arm, mm. cast my own arm, and then made it into looking like a Sunday dinner. And my friend, who was the photographer, we set it up at his house. We laid yeah. down all the china. We had all this. And it was supposed to be like this fake Christmas. Yeah. But when I went into Boots, they said, we can't do your work anymore. And uh, I got a phone call from the local police saying they wanted to know who was in the photos. And I was like, well, it's me. And they were like, OK, well, maybe you need to see a doctor. But OK, we won't investigate any further. And Boots banned me from ever using their photographic I mean, the, 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 the shock of it, even when you look at them first, you know it's real. I mean, when I saw it first, I was going, that's actually not someone with tomato ketchup on their hand. That's actually a real thing. And it is deeply... Shocking, but, but strangely, I mean, I can understand why the photographer did what he did, which sounds terrible. But I mean, I, I guess also the fact if he gets it done quickly, that you can patch the, yourself the, off. The thing is, is the one thing he, I, I tried to get him because I had this idea that I wanted to get myself in a wedding dress and hang myself from a tree <laughs> in Richmond Park because I wanted to do a whole series of suicidal shots oh. of women in these classic suicidal yeah. poses. But he was like, "No way, Carrie, it could I'm go done. wrong. I'm going to get." Right. It. That's where it draw a line. But if I had have done it, imagine it now if you'd have taken those photos. The one thing I know about my work is it's of the most moment it's advanced there's a lot of artists that deal with blood and deal with things like frank b and you know but the work that i've made at any time that i've made it i I always look back and think well no i might have seemed like i was out there but now there's a whole kind of art theory you could attach to this Mm. stuff my work is authentic yes it doesn't matter if it's about self-harm or if i'm doing photography Mm. or if i'm making mosaics the thing Mm. about my work is it has an authentic voice to it because it really is about me trying to express something over all the years that i've been working i've just become very skilled now i can hold my head up high and go yeah i've got craft skills i know how to print you've done the ten thousand hours yeah i've done ten thousand hours in printing in ceramics in mosaics in sculpture so you have this um very very challenging work partly therapeutic in your way of dealing with what's going on inside your life how did you move away from cutting does it seem anathema to you now that you were doing that or, or, or? oh god yeah it's really weird now when i see people who self-arm or mm. like when my daughter was growing up it almost seems like rites of passage you know people yeah. put it on instagram and it's it's taken on a very different meaning and stuff and i can't imagine it i can't imagine why yeah. i would ever have done that i mean it really was just a period of my life I was in a show called Disturbance Value and there was another artist on show who had a fish, rotten fish, stinking out the gallery. Did he have to replace it every few days? No, it was just there stinking. (laughs) I met him, we went out on a date and um, I agreed to marry him because I was supposed to go into a place called The Castle for six months, heavy therapeutic 
you know, I was supposed to go into a hospital for six months because I was diagnosed with extreme personality disorder. I was supposed to go in, but I met this guy, decided we would get married, and two weeks later I was married at Hackney Registrar, and a month later I was pregnant with my eldest daughter, Poppy. And I know it all seems nuts, and when I say it as a story, it is nuts, but in a way it wasn't, because us having my daughter was a saving thing for Mm. both me and for James. I may be quite irresponsible when it comes to myself, but when I had a child, I suddenly had to sort things out. After my daughter was born, I started to do mosaics. Once I got introduced to craft, I could see myself that rather than getting tied up with why I was doing things, because I was always very analytical with my art. It used to drive me nuts. Why am I doing? What does it mean? Suddenly I had a process. I mm. could have an idea, but the process would take weeks. It yeah. would take months, and I'd get lost in that process. Yeah. People, when they talk about craft, will always talk about getting into the zone. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a meditative I even place. do with these. It's yeah. a place where you just get lost in colour and design, and mm. I've realised how compulsive, obsessive I am. You know, mm. I'll spend hours and hours and hours, and lost in that process is when I feel most happy i realized not only how good mosaics was for me but i started to teach mosaics 10 years of my life where i just taught mosaics all the time i taught it in orphanages i taught it in schools i taught it in the local mental hospital i could see how amazing this process was and so so one of the amazing things you did was uh, i think it was around 2000 you went to romania and I, i was growing up in ireland at this time and the Romanian baby situation was, I guess, what it was, Ceausescu, and it was kids were basically just put in beds and they grew up in the cot and they, their limbs were deformed. And and your daughter, Poppy, was, was with you. On, on, on she went on one of the trips. Yeah. We went three times. It was my friend Karen from university yeah. and her brother Mark. It was kind of mad when we think back on it. I yeah. mean, we went with World Emergency Relief, which is a right-wing Christian organisation. Yeah. They took us there and we went back to the same orphanages over a period of time. We got them to paint and we got them to mosaic. And You because... called it when we spoke last transformational and I remember you saying that the joy of just seeing a child experiencing colours and paint. and These children had been in classrooms just putting dots in a book. Yeah. You know, they were perceived as less than human. And when we arrived, they wanted us to work only with the good kids. They said, you can just work with our good kids. And we said, we work with all of them yeah, or yeah, none of them. Absolutely right. They'd never worked with colour. They'd never seen that you take yellow, you take red and you make orange. Their faces light up and the joy of seeing all of that. But when people are allowed to be creative and when they create things, they're allowed to show their potential. And then the people around them, their perceptions changed. Over the time that we were there, the mayor would come or the TV would come and they would film these children and it went on the local news. It had a kind of a ripple effect But it was traumatising. On the last day when we would leave, we'd have a party and we played music and all the kids came and they would be dancing. And then when we were leaving, a lot of them were rocking, which is something that people do when they're deprived of human contact. But they'd start hitting their heads and we were very traumatised by the experience. And you look back and you think, was it a good thing or a bad thing? For some, it was a good experience. For some, it may have been a traumatic experience. It's hard to know. I mean, it's a shocking uh, slight on a society that, because we had it in Ireland with Magdalene laundries, there's been stuff where women, just the sheer, the sheer shame of a, a woman getting pregnant in a family, to the extent where we will cast her out of our family, put her in a home with nuns where she will have the child, where it gets taken off or gotten, sometimes killed, in one of the most religious 
Catholic nations in the world and the hypocrisy. We, we were not even going to go near the priests diddling with tens of thousands of boys, mainly. And you look back on it and you go, how the hell? And this is my grandparents and parents. It's not like the famine, you know, six generations ago, or it's not like the dark ages when Druids roamed the, the land. And, you, you know, you see this stuff in your life at the time. You go and do something about it as you did, or you scratch your head as I probably did, going, what the hell is a country allowing that for? And we lived through it. And then you look back and you go, that is fucked up, you know? The thing is, is these things are allowed because everyday people's lives are really hard. Mm. If you look in Romania, how harsh their conditions were, how awful it was. Yeah. If you can't feed your kids, you are not going to care about somebody yeah. else's kids. And so in a way, you have to make them less than humans because yeah. that's the disconnect, isn't it? Yeah. That's how you process this. This is how we do terrible things when we bomb countries. Yeah. We dehumanise people. The people who ran the concentration camps and put people on trains. Yeah, no, but it's, it's, it, it does segue back to the earlier conversation about the person who's prepared to pipe up and say, at the risk of causing offence and at the risk of causing outrage and at the risk of not doing what society is doing. You know, when you do these kind of humane acts, there is part of it which is about you're doing it also for yourself. We aren't very capable of taking care of ourselves. And so in a way you switch that and you take care of other people and you become empathetic and you try to help. And the older I've got, the more I've realised that actually, you know, I need to look after myself mm. as well. Because mm. in other ways you burn yourself out, which is yeah. what you do if you do a lot of community yeah. work or you do a lot of work in orphanages or all the stuff that I've done. I mean, my therapist always uses the analogy of like, you have to have the oxygen mask on yourself first. Yes, A lot of it is, is about age. When you're young, you have a naivety or this desire to heal the world or Some to people. do things. And all of the things that I've done, which people always go, oh my God, you're so lovely, you did this, you did that I think no I was a real depressive person having my life put into some context realizing how fucking lucky I am yeah. it enabled me to reconsider my life I could go to these places I could do something but I, I also benefited hugely yeah. from everything I've done and when people say oh you help what you give you get back three times it's true we move from Romania to can we talk about the capital punishment issue now? Yes, yeah. Well, about the same time that I started going to Romania, I picked up a big issue, and at the back of it, it had a little advert for human rights. It said, could you befriend someone on death row? Could you become a pen pal to someone who maybe not have family or friends? And I thought, yeah, I could. Again, I came to this, like a lot of people, thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to write to a mass murderer. When I was growing up, I was always fascinated with mass murderers. I'd read all Dennis Nilsson, Moore's murderers books. I had a fascination. I wanted to know, but how could you do that? What makes you do that? So they give you a name, you write a letter, and two weeks later, I got this letter back. It was on my mantelpiece for about three days and just thought, oh, my God, what have I done? I've got this letter from someone this on was death Lewis row. E. Ramirez. Yes. Eventually, I thought, right, I'll open this letter. And this guy had said, oh, hi, thank you very much for Was writing. he at random that you got yes, him? Yes, right. it was totally. Yeah. It's pre-computers. Now yeah, I think it's I weird because you can go you, online. You and, can date one. <laughs> yes. this wasn't I love the fact that it was fate. 
and I got this letter and I always remember it because he said, I, I see you do mosaics. I've done some mosaics. What nippers do you use? I'm including a photo of some mosaics you might like. And it was so like, Mental. the thing that hits you in the face is humanity. Whatever preconceived ideas you've got about, oh, death row, mass murderers, all of that. And we all have it because the cinema and the media has made us all think like that you suddenly get this letter and it's a human being who's yeah. just talking about the everyday for five years i had an incredibly intense relationship with lewis he was a fantastic writer he'd won awards for his poems and writing and he became like my best mate and i would write to him and i would say i feel really bad i'm writing to you about my boyfriend or about my weight writing to you with my complaints and yet you're sitting in a cell waiting to die and he wrote back and he'd say look carrie when I write to you, you give me my humanity back because when I write to you, I can counsel you. I can be the person that I was when I was outside of this cell. And so it was a beautiful relationship. After five years, you get that letter that you don't want that says he's going to be executed. And I looked into all his case and, and trust me, I know everyone says, oh, they're innocent, but he was 70 miles away when this crime happened. He couldn't have done the crime and then he was done for contract killing. They say he paid, but there is no evidence, nothing. There was a drug addict who was paid $500 to say that he'd heard he'd done it. I mean, there was nothing. And suddenly I find myself in Texas at death row with this guy visiting him for the last two days of his life. And it was just overwhelming for me because I was brought up to believe in black and white law and order. These things are pillars of our society. Justice or mercy. Yeah, you know, you believe in these things. And I think most people do. Yeah. If you don't have any experience of the criminal justice system, you believe in a way that it works. Yeah. When you're becomes personal and when you have something and it's your friend and you look into it, you realise that it's completely arbitrary it's a joke it doesn't exist and so when they executed lewis they didn't just murder my friend my whole kind of world order collapsed at that time because i felt so helpless there was nothing i could have done and so when i came back i just decided right i'm going to mosaic the back of my wall in memory for lewis and I think that was the time when you could say craftivism. That was when it became activism. That's when I became politicised. But that's also when I became most, most prolific as an artist. Rather than it being about my ego, it was about a desire to make something that would be a memorial, for, a fitting memorial for my friend. Yeah. And so I did. I threw myself completely into making Lewis's Wall. And for a good 10 years of my life, I did nothing but try to campaign against the death penalty. Uh, you had a quote which was those with no capital get punished. That's what Lewis taught me. Capital punishment means those with no capital get punished. And then I became friends with the guy in the cell next to Lewis because Ash. his wife, his twin sister, was also pen pal to Lewis. Ash started to write to me and then his wife asked me to bear witness to his execution. So suddenly, two years later, I'm in Texas again, but this time I have to witness someone be executed so you went to visit lewis which yes. you didn't go to his execution no. i lived in texas which is the poster child for capital punishment if you want to call it that and, and, and a very bizarre place and racist and gunny and all those sorts of things when ash started writing to you you know five years of knowing him then he lewis died then another friend of lewis's i guess you you, you can't turn him away were you 
coping with this? Were you able to understand I'm now this person or was it like I can't do it again? I no, can't because do it again. listen, after Lewis died, I decided to try and set up a big art show about death row. I wrote to all these other people on death row asking them for their art because I, I knew that uh. they were artists and then one guy was a schizophrenic and he wrote back to me saying oh out of the blue came you tell me about yourself and I realised you can't just send a letter into death row and ask for their art you're engaged in a yeah. relationship so I was actually writing to five people on death row and you had to write this in handwriting and put it into an envelope yes. and put a stamp on it it's and now send different. it away now they have a mail system yeah. it's all very different since it's all become computerised but yeah I mean I used to eat, sleep and breathe death row. I mean, I've watched every film, I've watched every play because I am compulsive, obsessive. I was, you know, there wasn't anything I didn't know about the facts and figures. I used to go around and give lectures. The next thing, I'm being invited to be at Ashes Execution. The strange thing is, is that I'd been just awarded a commission to mosaic a car, the Tiki Love Truck, that was going to have hula hula girls handing out messages of love. It was the first ever art car parade in Manchester. There'll be a photograph of the hula hula Tiki Truck on the blurb for the podcast, which is amazing. And so, um, yeah, so Walk the Plank, an amazing organisation, gave me a commission. I was going to mosaic this taxi. I found out just after I started to make this taxi that I was being asked to go and be at this execution and so it's what you do I'm sitting there and I thought we're going to make this uh, tiki love truck in honour of Ash we'll have to combine the two Was there any question of Ash's guilt or innocence or? Ash again always said he was innocent the person was supposed to have been a very tall Arab and he's a very short Mexican guy and his own lawyer took out a mortgage to try and raise the money to have various tests done and things I mean it's another one where Clive Safford-Smith, who's a leading lawyer that deals with uh, death row, I interviewed him and he said that if you're in Texas on death row, you're 94% dead. Yeah, yeah. Only 6% will ever get off. So you go over... That just before that, I was on a boat that was going up and down the River Thames and it was the last day that Tony Blair was in office. And so this band that we know called Sick Note decided to hire out a boat and try and like reenact the Sex Pistols and go up and down. Outside and, Parliament. Yeah, and Great. Alabama Free were there too, the band. And my friend Nick, who's the harmonica player in Alabama Free, was there. He's also an expert in death masks. And he knew when he was on this boat and he said, I hear you're going to Texas. He said, is there any chance I could do a death mask? And I was like, well, you probably could because I know the family. So I contacted them and said, look, you know, when I come over, how would you feel about us doing a death mask? Death row is full of like... People are so paranoid. There's no trust. But because I'd been there, because they'd seen I'd done that Wolf and Lewis, they knew I was an artist. His wife said yes, and Ash said yes. And so I flew into Texas, then Nick flew into Texas. It was so mad because when we got there, they didn't realise that a death mask is done after you're dead. Linda was like, so have we got permission? We're like, no. And she's like, where are we going to do it? We could do it in the back of a car. And you're like, you can't do a death mask in a moving car. You know, it was nuts. I mean, it was completely nuts. Legally, Texas is the only state. If you have your body bag, you can transport a body. You can take it from one walk to another. When we discovered this, we went and bought a body bag. Within five minutes of him being executed... Was he lethal injection? It was lethal injection. Within five minutes... He was in the back of a hire car and he was driven to a cabin in some woods that we'd hired out and we took a door off and put laid it across two camp beds and we carried him in there and we put him on there and we did this death mask. It's so unusual. When someone dies, there's an autopsy. 
there's some procedure. When they murder them at Huntsville, they give you a certificate that says homicide on it straight away and they give you a body. When we took him, he was still warm. And when you look at the death mask, you, you think he has stubble, but it didn't. It was goosebumps. His skin reacted to the coldness of the plaster. It's like bizarre. It's ritualistic. Also, you have to remember that Texas is a non-contact prison. So when Ash went in for 12 years, no one had touched that man except prison guards. No one. That's why when you see all those classic photos, it's an arm against an arm on a glass. That's as close as you get. It's kind of unexplainable. Yeah. And so we I was watching it like. Oh, I mean, you know that expression when they say your knees go? I've had that twice in my life. Once when I was walking over a bridge in Costa Rica to do a bungee jump. And once when I was walking into to, like, the Green Mile. Is it like the movies you're looking through glass? And... Yes, it is. And I thought we'd be sitting down with this glass, but actually it's a very small confined space and you're all pushed in and you're next to each other. And behind you is all the press. And so there were five witnesses for him. And in another room is the people who are watching it, who's the victim's family. But I was there holding the hand of his wife. All I can really remember is her wiping away the condensation on the glass so she could continue to make eye contact with him. Was he sedated? Well, he's strapped down on a gurney. Well, do you think he was sedated before? No, the no. And the thing is, is, prior to that, we'd be walked into this room that was like something from Dukes of Hazard, like some really old 70s office. We were told now is the time. So we get up and we walk and we walked and you kind of have to hold yourself. You have to go, right, this is it. I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to get every bit of strength I can and I'm, I'm going to muster it and I'm going to do this. So they walk you into this room and you sit down and then nothing happened for 27 minutes. They held us in a room. No one spoke. I was like, what's going on? Why are we here? And I, and I spoke to the, we don't know. We don't know. And apparently we found out afterwards they were looking for a vein. But all that time you're in disbelief. You're thinking maybe he'll get a reprieve because people get reprieved. Mm. People get reprieved after they've been executed. But then after like 27 minutes of just sitting in this weird office, we would, nope, right, that's it. And you walk into a room and he's just tied to a gurney. And, you know, people say that it's quick and it's painless. Well, it's not. It took him seven and a half minutes to die. That's like listening to two records. You listen to two records and think that's how long it takes that person to die. You in know. great pain? It's hard to know whether they're in pain, but they are moving yeah, and jerking, jerking against spasms, something. Yeah. I know it's not quick and I doubt it's painless. You know? And sometimes they completely botch it. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think like the same when I was assorted that you kind of have out-of-body experiences when things are happening that are so traumatic. There is a way that your body or your mind copes and that is to kind of almost take yourself out of that space. In a lot of ways, it was a blur. And the thing is, is that when most people go see an execution, they go see an execution, that's it. You walk away. But for us, we saw the execution and then it's like, shit, we've got something to do now. As soon as that execution was finished, we were running down the road. We were going to a morgue. We were picking up a body. We were putting it in the car. We were driving for about half an hour. Now, it may be legal to transport dead bodies. It's not legal to take them out and put them in a cabin and do death masks on them. You've got all this adrenaline kicking in. You're trying to do this thing. The family was there. We were all there. We went in. We made this death mask. It's incredibly hot in the middle of this like weird camping site and then we have to put him back into a car and then we have to drive across state for four hours to deliver him to another 
place. And part of the time, we were in a two-car convoy where the car in front was pulled over for speeding. And we're thinking, like, do you know what I mean? We've got this dead body in the bag. It was a mad experience. It was like the weirdest road trip. In Only a, in Texas. But in a sense, it's what saved it. You know, when we look yeah. back at that experience, it was like, we got one over on the authorities. Yeah. Before they execute someone, you have one hour to talk on the phone. Ash was on the phone and he said, oh, my God. When Carrie came to see me and I saw her cry... I saw her break down. I saw humanity in her eyes. He said, I can't believe you came all this way for me for a death mask, man. That's usually bestowed on kings. He said, now I know I ain't trash. Now I know I'm somebody. Mm. It took on a whole life force of its own. We really believed in what we were doing. We went there. We got the death mask. We came back. Within one week, that death mask was on the top of the Tiki Love Truck, and we went through the streets of Manchester with 45,000 people cheering. That's like a deity. We cast a spell. It's like magic. And you have to believe in all that because that's what carries you through that process. I was always worried because of my mental health and because of the way that I am, and I'm an extremely sensitive person, that somehow I would it, it would disturb me. But in some way it didn't because the art aspect, the same way when I used to, I was a self-harmer and I made art out of it. The same yeah. way when I went to Romania and we made an artistic response. The same way with Death Row. Making an artistic response, it saves you. I've always known that. I've always known that the people in Death Row who write and they paint, that creativity is what gives us our sanity and our humanity. My whole life journey has presented it time and time again to me. Mm. My mission and Nick's mission was to give Ash a life beyond death, was to try and use him as a, an example to try and let people know about the injustice of the death penalty. And for like seven years, we used to drive that truck around Glastonbury. Yeah. The Mutoid Wastes used to have it in all their shows. We've taken it to Blackpool to their illuminated light show. We've mm. been to Edinburgh for New Year's Eve. We just used to drive it around. And people will come up to you and they'll say, oh, my God, what's that? And you'll be able to tell them. And when you tell the story, like I've told you, it humanizes it. It opens up a dialect rather than people going, oh, you know, kill them. You know, in 2014, that, that went into the Victorian Albert Museum. It yeah. was one of the star exhibits for disobedient objects, how one can out-design authority. Over 400,000 people went to that show, and it's kind of amazing. You know, you do things, you don't really know what you're doing, but that's the beauty of art. It's the beauty mm. of writing a song or making a, a mosaic or any creative pursuit. It has its own life force, and then you, you put it out to the world, and, and amazing things happen to Did that. you get much outrage for doing it? No, because it's a bit like my house. I yeah. think that when you do things through the conduit of art and craft in particular, it neutralizes it things. Does. That's the beauty of art and the beauty of craft and the beauty of music because mm. I think they're levelers. People, you know, the working class don't like them, the rich don't like the poor, or, you know, you have all these tribes. But the thing that we all can agree on is, oh, we all love this music yeah. or we all love that that's why, you know, I love that quote, beware artists, they mix with all levels of society and are therefore the most dangerous. But mm. that's why they try to control culture, because in a sense, it's that one part where we can all be, say, at a rock festival and dancing to a record. And it doesn't really matter what your background is, because it unifies us all in that moment. I remember years ago, I was doing a Myers-Briggs test, which I find kind of weirdly interesting but one of the questions on it was which is better justice or mercy and you're, you're meant to just give whatever answer you you know your mind gives you not think about it too much and it was funny I, I had a very epiphany like 
response to that because my initial response and probably given my background was justice is always better than mercy and one of my friends Danny Higgins he had put down mercy and I said why and he went just two words he said who's justice and as soon as I heard those two words I went oh fuck is it Hitler's justice King Henry VIII's justice is it Donald Trump's justice but mercy is just mercy. I would have said justice as well, you probably see, enough. Well, and, but isn't mercy the right answer? Like, given even that, those experiences that you go through. The death would... penalty is wrong whether they're yes, guilty or innocent. Yes, yeah. I've written to people who yeah. did commit the crime. Yeah. There is a statistic when Bush was in charge of Texas, three out of every four people on death row in Texas were ex-military. Now, yeah. I wrote to five people in Texas and four of them had served in the military. And also, it's not about what colour you are, it's about who you kill. If you kill a white person, you're on death row. That All of these things are played out. You can see how unfair it is. Trust me, there are people who are dangerous who need to be taken out of society. Yeah. But the vast majority of people on death row look into their lives and they will be tragic. Yeah. I'm going to just want to now go to where your life is going. You have three kids, Poppy, Rudy, Roxy... And you've just been appointed the first ever visual artist for Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. So talk to me about, first of all, congratulations, because that is amazing. When I interview and meet people like you, one of the things that annoys me is how institutions are afraid of people like you. And, and you're, you're starting to get... Well, I know, for an anarchist ceramicist, I've done quite well, you though have. I wouldn't even say that but about you know myself I mean by anymore. That. All the way back to your story at the start of the podcast about oh don't do that because uh, you know but the idea that certain sections of institutional society are able to sit down and go you know what we're going to give it to her why because she's brave because she is true she has integrity and she believes and that's the the criteria and ticks tick boxes that really should all artists should be should be given so tell me about this new role that you have well, I'm actually I'm halfway through it I was really surprised when they did give it to me I'm right. actually I'm still always surprised when I get these kind of prestigious jobs I mean for me it was a huge honour especially because when I went in the interview I told them I don't know anything about Shakespeare if I'm <laughs> honest I studied two plays O level and yeah. A level but I can't watch it I it just you know it's impenetrable I'm with you on that yeah. and I think they liked my honesty they gave me the job so I have to spend a period of time up in Stratford upon A go to all the places they've given me totally free range to do whatever I like it's empowering for me to go there and be part of this process because I'm I'm an individual like I said I suffer from insecurities myself Mm. to go there and to to be listened to and to have like these world authorities talk to me it's kind of an amazing position to be Mm. in Funnily enough, last Monday, I had to present halfway through my findings to the trustees of Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust. And I had to go and present and I showed them all these plates that I'd done. And that's where a lot of my body of my work has come from, is from the very idea that you have Shakespeare. Everyone knows who Shakespeare is. Everyone has an opinion of Shakespeare. His wife is just being reduced to a cottage. She's not (laughs) referred to as Miss Shakespeare, you know, as Mrs. Shakespeare. What I've done with my residency is to think, well, it's Year of the Woman. 
we have enough about history why don't we have her story Great. and so a large part of my work is looking at the women a lot of it's based on Jermaine Greer who's given a feminist interpretation of Anne Hathaway looking at that but looking at all the alternatives because what I like to do is I'm, I'm a bit like an investigator I go there not knowing anything look at this look at that compare it and think well what's interesting to me well what's interesting to me is how I believe history is a lie agreed upon Good line. Well, it is. And it's like history, his story, whose story. It it usually is. (laughs) Of course, that's why it's called his story. (laughs) And it's an agenda. And the most amazing thing about Shakespeare is that really we know nothing. We don't really even know if Shakespeare wrote the plays. That's That's not a topic they want me to cover. But (laughs) the fact is, is that... When people write or talk about Shakespeare, they just project their own agenda. Mm. Some people want him to be this bisexual who who Mm. ran off and did this. Some people want him to be a collective of people. Jermaine Greer wants it to be about all the women. But Mm. that's the point. When you don't have real information, you go and look for the things that back up your arguments. And so for me, I'm kind of going in there blank and thinking, well, rather than try and make commentary on it, I'm making commentary on the fact of how history is dictated, how these things are passed down Mm. throughout history. Anne Hathaway is this woman of contempt. You know, if you really do read about her, most scholars say that she's ugly. There's no photo of her, so how can you say that? She's the older woman who got this young guy, had his babies, you know, and he ran away because he couldn't bear to be with her. This is a woman who lived during the plague, who had three children, who kept the home going. If Shakespeare hated his wife, he still went back there, if you follow the narrative that we were led to believe. He Mm. chose to go back there. She was living with his parents, So I'm interested in how how history is taught because when I did the stuff on the Victorian Albert Museum, I got to do uh, a ceramic intervention on the front and one of the things that I wrote was history is a weapon. And it is because it's like, whose history? They always say it's the winner. The person who wins detects the history. And so I'm trying to visually reimagine Anne Hathaway. Some things are really interesting, like their daughter, Susanna, there's something called the Bawdy Court. People were taken to the courts all the time. It was all tied up in litigation in Tudor time. Shakespeare's daughter was taken to Bawdy Court and charged with giving a man syphilis, not her husband. It was never proven, and it may well have just been a charge because they used to just charge you with things yeah. to tie you up in litigation. But when you start thinking about, well, these women all had babies before marriage. They've all been charged with, you know, having VD. When you start yeah. having these information, I think you start to look at them differently mm. rather than these dowdy Protestant women that were just... I, mean, I could even throw in my own life. I'm not going to cover myself in any glory here, but like the, the upbringing that I had in the 70s and 80s, things like the idea that women enjoy sex, something as simple as that, was not a thing for me. It was like it was almost transactional and it was... You hear it in, in Apologists for Rape. You know, the, the, the whole, oh, what were you wearing when you got raped? You know, this whole idea that that, oh well if you were wearing a short skirt well, what do you expect a man well, listen, just when I was attacked when I was attacked I had the police interview me for eight hours saying well do you always walk around late at night I know that experience really well the reality is is we still have hundreds of girls being abused yeah. or you know in care homes exactly. these things are real mm. your work is I'm looking at a poster here a piece of art on your wall is risque gives me a carry on feel it, it's cheeky Lots of people are going to tut-tut it. 
it's very cultural it's from another era it's a lot of you do a lot of work with porn from the 70s and please do go and buy some of her work because she's sat here today talking about all her stories but she does have a, uh, a, a job and a tax bill <laughs> to cover so um <laughs> Tell me about what the future looks like now for you and in, in haven't had all of that amazing journey. Well, the thing for me is that I grew up with a father that was really into porn and right. very autistically open about it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm using all this stuff because I grew up with it. There's part of me that likes it and loves it. And my reference to porn comes out of being a child and of having seen it. And I remember that when I was exposed to it, the thing that always stuck with me was the cartoons. Again, there's that disconnect. I must have seen it as a child, admitted all the really bad stuff and just looked at the cartoons. And I have a kind of a mixed response to it because part of me loves it. All the imagery I use, I usually use because there is something that appeals to me on a a purely artistic, aesthetic level. I think, oh, that's lovely. And then I try to subvert it. And then I try to put things onto it. And I'm interested in the labels that women have. I mean, a lot of my work really is is humorous. It's funny. It's a response. It's not meant to be taken too seriously. Like, it's been on social media and I've had loads of criticisms. And it's like, you've obviously, do you not know irony? They don't get the irony and the kind of saucy kind of, you're trying to poke certain people with a stick and they're reacting, which is exactly what you want. And, I, and other I, people are finding it funny. Yeah, I mean, a, a large percentage of people do, but obviously some people are offended. But yeah. I, like I said, would defend my right to offend. Yeah, do you know what that's I mean? Good. I was brought up in a world where you were never allowed to swear. My dad never said the F word really? ever in his uh, life. We mine neither. We weren't allowed to swear. Yeah. It was the worst thing you could do. My sister, I'm still well able to not swear. When I, when I go out with my sister, she says, well, do you have to swear? You know, yeah. it's like, yes, I love fucking swearing. Yeah. I love swearing. I yeah. love saying and the word you're allowed in this podcast. I love it because I know you're not supposed to. I think when you're an artist, there's something that remains childlike about you. And I think that that's where I am. I'm now still that naughty child that wants to say things you can't say because what's so bad about saying cunt? It's just a word. What's bad is what's happening in the world. Words are words. Imagery is imagery. I'm trying to push certain buttons or make people think twice about things. So, before we finish, what would you say to the young you now if you could go back and whisper in her ear? No, I know it's a hypothetical, but I'm very intrigued by this question. What would I say to the young? um, I would say you turned out all right. Brilliant. That is a great way to leave it. Thank you very much for being on a pint with Shawnee B. Carrie Wright the opportunity I love your story someone needs to make a movie out of this maybe I will please go on to Carrie's uh, website that you'll find at the end of the podcast and purchase some of her unique and original and fantastic art best of luck in the future thank you thank you